I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. This month, Sin City. There are few names in the world of comic books with as much baggage as Frank Miller's. Before his later descent into self-parody, Miller was perhaps the founding father of the grim and gritty subgenre, and in the 1980s, his work was like an atomic bomb dropped on American comic books. Taking over as artist and then writer of Marvel's Daredevil, a long-running series about a blind superhero that hovered on the edge of cancellation, Miller injected the book with a meaty helping of Mickey Spillane-style crime noir, tough guy narration, slick violence, a decayed urban setting inspired by movies like Death Wish and Taxi Driver, and oh, so many gangsters, street toughs, and ninjas. Taking his toys to DC Comics, Frank Miller would then work his magic on Batman in The Dark Knight Returns, a near-future dystopian miniseries about a middle-aged Bruce Wayne coming out of retirement in a crumbling Gotham City overrun by a cartoonishly monstrous street gang straight out of a Mad Max movie. Operatic and stylized to the point that it towed right up to the line of self-parody, Dark Knight Returns was largely unrestrained by an artistic DC house style. Miller reimagined Batman as a giant walking callus of a man, internally narrating all his nocturnal exploits and, at the time, shocking violence, in a way that sounded a lot more like Mac Bolan than Adam West. But only in the pages of Dark Horse Presents would Frank Miller's gloves truly come off in his creator-owned magnum opus, Sin City. Later subtitled The Hard Goodbye, it was a 13-part, serialized, pulpy revenge story set in Basin City, a town that makes even Miller's vision of Gotham City look tame. Sin City was this hyperbolic, funhouse mirror crime world as only Frank Miller could have imagined, populated entirely by lowlifes, mobsters, prostitutes, corrupt businessmen, assassins, creeps, killers, crooked cops, dirty politicians, and one hulking, unkillable brute named Marv. Miller followed up his first Sin City yarn with a dame to kill for a year later to be continued with the big fat kill, that yellow bastard, and family values in subsequent years. His Sin City short stories were then collected in a volume titled Booze, Broads, and Bullets, and his final, to date, Sin City miniseries, Helen Back, being completed in 2000. Sin City was Frank Miller's canvas for perhaps his most ambitious comic book art to this day. Illustrated in gloriously stark black and white, Miller experimented with a hard contrast of hard black shadows and a striking minimalism that transformed his surreal and often grotesque characters and world into something often quite beautiful. It's later been adapted into a pair of movies in 2005 and 2014, directed by Miller himself in collaboration with Robert Rodriguez, the director of El Mariachi and Desperado. So this month, we're talking about Frank Miller at the height of his artistic powers and Frank Millering, the most Frank Millery Frank Miller that anyone could have ever Frank Millered. We're talking about Sin City. Let's meet the panel. 
First, he's a past guest and a veteran of the View from the Gutters podcast and the House of Jock and Stan. Welcome back to the show, Mr. Joe Preddy. It's good to be here. <laughs> yes. And we're back, baby. Yeah. Oh, good love to have you, Joe. It's the, the good days, the bad old days, the, no, the all, all or nothing days. All or nothing days. <laughs> and another returning guest, friend of the show, librarian and fan of all things grim and gritty. Welcome back, Kit to Forge. I smell the way podcasts ought to smell. <laughs> I don't know that that's a good thing. <laughs> Great to be back. Thank you. And finally, the Mr. Schlub to my Mr. Clump, mm -hmm. the Gladys to my Marv, Mr. Casey Doran. Thanks, Mike. Good to be here. Good to have you here. Yeah. So this episode, I think, is something that's a bit special and maybe even a little bit strange because it's a second shot at a podcast conversation that everyone in this room tried to have. And I looked it up about six years oh ago. Oh, my God. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> so, so this isn't even the first, clearly the first time this has happened. We've had at least two panel episodes that have gone part or whole completely undone for whatever reason and had to redo. But this was for your guys' podcast, for Joe and for Tobias' podcast. Yeah, right? I believe this was for View from the Gutters. And we had, uh, yeah. we got everybody down to Olympia. It was at your house. It yes. was. And then In we had an extra room. person who is not able uh, to be here because I've fallen out of touch with them uh, for the most part. But um, yeah, we had everything good to go. And then my audio got corrupted. And so it was, everybody else's audio was fine. We had four perfectly usable audio tracks and then mine was corrupted. And I thought, <laughs> well, I, I could put it up, but then I was like, eh. Sin City yeah. corrupts everything. Yeah, that's just everything it touches. It's going to say it's a dirty, dirty podcast. It's a, yeah. yeah. So, this yeah. This town ruins everything. <laughs> this, this entire podcast should be done in Batman voice, by the way. Like a gargle nails voice. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. I, I fully agree with that. I'm, I am super excited for this conversation. I am too. I have been literally promising you guys to have this podcast for a number of years. And at the same time, I'm looking over to check that it's still recording. Oh yeah, we're still going. I know. I because think... that's that's the part where I'm like, I keep waiting for the curse to come in. I mean, this is kind of like our curse of the Bambino. It's the <laughs> Sin City our original sin. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. So I want to dive right into it, and I want to open with you, Kit. But this is a question for everybody. Do you remember the first time that you encountered Frank Miller's Sin City, and did it grab you right away? Yes. I do. Uh, clear as day. In fact, um, I was working in my first job ever um, at a Walden Books. Oh, ooh. 2004, um, I think it was. And I remember that everybody was afraid of the graphic novel section, uh, partially for the reason that nobody wanted to be seen there. Um, and part of it was because I worked with older ladies that were just like, I don't know what to do with this. <laughs> and I I grew up having to hide my comics and things. And suddenly I had this inroad to read whatever I wanted and it stayed at work. So my conservative parents would never know what I was reading. We had a checkout system. I remember seeing the spines of the Sin City graphic novels where it had Nancy at, you oh, know, yeah. at the Lariat on there. And I was just instantly grabbed because it's first off Christian kid, the word sin in huge letters is always fun and exciting. And I was reading Sandman at the same time. So it was really the first time I was getting into comics that were uh, geared toward a more adult mindset and audience. I remember my first lunch break sitting there and like reading Marv in particular. And I'd always been a Wolverine fan and a Lobo fan. And again, big grunty punchy fan. 
And I was just, I was so in love. I just thought he was wonderful. And all that pulp from those movies I watched with my grandfather, just, it was one of the best lunch breaks I ever had. It's only 30 minutes, but I got so far through that book and I'm like already grabbing it off the shelf. Like I'm spending my first paycheck. It's gone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Long story, but yes, I absolutely remember. I actually have a very similar kind of reaction to to Sin City, but it was at a younger age. I was like 13 when I first saw it in a Walden Books or B. Dalton bookstore. And I think part of it was that the graphic novel section then and the graphic novel section now are completely different beasts. Yes. That I think back then it was like one shelf or maybe two shelves if you were lucky. And there would always be the same things on them in almost every store. They'd be like Dark Phoenix Saga, Dark Knight Returns, Watchmen, greatest Batman stories ever told. <laughs> you might have a couple volumes of something like Sandman there. And then there'd be Sin City. Mm-hmm. And I think the first time I saw it, I was, I don't the repelled isn't the word, but I think I was allergic to it. I wasn't ready to buy what it was selling because holy shit, it was in black and white. And it wasn't drawn to look like Art Adams or Jim Lee did it. So I was like, nope. And I would think I was at the height of my like X-Men craze back then. And as much as I liked you know, Wolverine and stuff, I wasn't quite ready to try something that didn't have capes and tights in it. So I kind of let it sit there, but it was kind of enticing. And it's like, oh my God, there's boobs in this. <laughs> so, and it kind of felt a little naughty, like it was beyond my level but there was something about black and white. It was the same thing with sort of the Dave McKeon Sandman covers that just they're they're almost brilliant because they're enticing to anyone over a certain age, but they make little kids just not see it. Yeah. Mm. It's like, you know, the Hogwarts castle. Like it's got a <laughs> charm on it that makes people to wander away from it if you're not specifically looking for it. And I think by the time I finally did get into Sin City, I was in high school. I was looking for more comics outside of the usual capes and tights. I wanted something that was cool and interesting. And I had just gotten into Preacher and Bone and all of these different titles that had kind of moved me out of my comfort zone slowly. And I think it took me still a few more years to get into Sin City because, again, I'm a Gen Xer and we're afraid of things in black and white. <laughs> Which, I mean, you're a millennial. So, I mean, I think that with manga and things like that, that's a that's just not a barrier to people younger than us. Hmm. But I don't know, Joe. Where did you first encounter it? So I'm trying to remember if I. So my ex-wife um, worked at a Barnes and Nobles, and I would often, if I got there early to pick her up or whatever, I'd I'd read stuff. That was the first time I read Watchmen. It was the first time I read a lot of formative stuff. Hmm. And I want to say that was the first time I read Sin City. And um, I, at that point, I had, I was, I had missed comics for the last, I'd collected a lot when I was younger. And then in college, my collection was stolen. So I stopped. Yeah, it was, it was real. It was a long story and very upsetting to this day. But um, (laughs) so uh, I was aware that I'd missed a ton of shit. I just missed a bunch of stuff. And so I would just grab stuff that I was like, oh, I should read this. Um, And I'm pretty sure Sin City was one of the books I 
uh, I pulled off the shelf and I think I read it in one sitting waiting for, uh, for my then wife to get off, uh, work. And I just remember, you know, I've, I've always been a huge hard boiled fan. I love Dashiell Hammett. I love Raymond Chandler, Ross McDonald, um, the Spencer books, all that stuff. It's just, you know, I really like that. It's the one good man in a bad town. Yeah. And I really liked how Marv isn't the one good man in a bad town. <laughs> He's the one worse man in yes. a bad town. And uh, oh. it just kind of He's blew. a mentally cuddly worse man. <laughs> yeah. So I had this realization. I had this really interesting realization reading the book this time, which is, I think, and I don't know how y'all are going to feel about this. To me, Marv is Sam Spade if you replaced Ego with Id. Sam Spade is all cunning. Huh. He's all intelligence. He's like a shark. Marv isn't a shark. Marv is a, he's a goddamn rabid wildebeest. And he will just, so he true. is going to run through you if you get in his way. <laughs> no. If you leave him alone, or if he likes you, you're you're totally in. But like, he's very primal. He's very, he's, when he has a goal, Nothing will keep him from the goal except death, his death. And yeah. that's going to take a lot more than you've got on you. And it's going to take a lot more than you and that guy over there and yeah. those three guys over there have on you. So I, I think, I'll argue with you later. <laughs> I think we should now. talk a bit about Marv right now because yeah. I think he's probably the most iconic character that was created for, for Sin City. Um, I tend to see him as kind of a cross between... Forrest Gump and Jason Voorhees. <laughs> <laughs> Where, like Forrest Gump, he kind of wanders through this world, doesn't take in all of the sensory data that he's getting, or really trust it a lot of the time, but he has this, this kind of crazy drive that pushes him onward. And you kind of have two modes with Marv, where you're either in absolute mortal danger, or you're the safest person in the world. I think he's absolutely observant, though. That's a the thing like it's it, I know at least when he goes up against like Kevin and stuff like that it's like he he's usually observant enough to to do things like okay I don't hear helicopters I don't hear the sound of footsteps like he is observant in the same way an animal is observant like a predator is observant um but I also think he's super he's very witty too which I I always kind of balk at the idea that somehow there's less intelligence because a, a person goes into things the way Marv goes into things but I I think he's perfectly intelligent in a different skill set I mm -hmm. guess he's um, kind of a, a killer savant yeah he just loves killing you know <laughs> and I I also with with Marv I also would kind of balk against the idea that he's worse than anybody else because he holds ethics like he says very specifically he's like I won't I don't hurt girls. The only times he does go about hurting a girl is when it's 100% necessary in the sense of, I don't want her to see this because this is terrible. Um, and what did he say? I don't want her to have nightmares, I think, with Wendy when he popped her. Um, and then when Gail and the girls have him and stuff, like he could have, as he put it, get up and like paste him. He was out of those ropes the whole while. Like, you know, and, and Gail tied him. He could have jumped up and like forced a situation or other things or yelled or gotten aggressive. But he was smart enough to know that with the people around him, he would not have gotten as far as he did doing something like that to convince them that he didn't mean them any harm. And so I think that that indicates a type of social intelligence and a, a sort of situational awareness that, 
yeah, I'd argue he's not actually, he's not a dumb brute. I'm, and I'm, I don't know. No, that's not at all what I meant. Yeah. I think Sam Spade moves through the Maltese Falcon like he's playing chess. He's playing everybody right. against everybody else. He immediately, he doesn't know what the whole situation is in the beginning, but he knows that something stinks and he's not going to be the patsy. Marv moves through, and, and in that way, he's like a cat. Or a he's, bull, he's a bull in a china shop yeah, a little Mar- bit. And people are <laughs> people are people that are against him are able to know that he's the type of person that you could set him off in that way. Yeah. Because he can be manipulated. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then, and I think it's not that Marv is devoid of intelligence, it's that the intelligence he has is very much, it's an animal intelligence. It's an intelligence that he's developed because survival depended on it so he's not playing chess with you he's picking up the board and beating you to death <laughs> he's got the ooda loop down pat is the thing you know they talk about that in the military the ooda loop you know yeah. like a, you know observing and acting sort of thing um and uh I, I i think that particular type of aptitude in a character especially in a large brutish character like that is fun and for me it's iconic to be able to watch those lug characters have oh, an yeah. internal monologue the same way like the Sam Spade character would. Yeah. I love getting into the mind of somebody like that, particularly when they surprise you with stuff like, yeah, I have my individual ethics. And also I'm going to have this weird fetish for coats, which is adorable. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well and I think that's what nice makes <laughs> Sin City so compelling is that Marv is very compelling. Oh, he yeah. is I, he is kind of a Jason Voorhees, but I, I do think that... I, I think well, I like what Mike said, right? You're either going to die or you're the safest person in the world. Because, And what I mean is like the good man in a bad town, when you talk about somebody like Philip Marlowe, he's not super tough. He's not super strong. He's not super. He's not a great fighter. He's got a dogged determination and he will do what he tells you he's going to do. And he will do that until you he finishes or until he dies. Marv is... When I say Marv is the worst guy in a bad town, I mean nobody that steps to Marv is getting away. <laughs> right. <laughs> because right. you you may kill him, you and 20 of your friends may kill him, but you will never ever forget that you went up against him ever <laughs> because he's taken something because that's how you that's how Sin City operates. There is no there's only the what, the rule is you give as good as you get and you give as good as you get until you're in the ground. Yeah. And Marv has been able to do that more successfully than most of the characters we see. Well, I mean, is is there a way in which, um, I mean, it's pretty easy to understand that there is a parallel between Sin City and Gotham City. Mm-hmm. as Because the title of the series is Sin City. It's about a place and it's about a set of motifs more than it is about, it's not Marv's story or the friends of Marv. But Marv almost is kind of a Batman. He is almost the Batman, um, except that he just—he's not in every single story, right? He has a—he has a beginning, middle, end, and then you see him peppered throughout. In yeah, there is kind of a Pulp Fiction non-linear angle to it. That right. The very Marv dies at the end of the first story you see him in, but then he keeps popping in, and through context clues, you can kind of figure out where you are in the timeline. It's kind of like in Pulp Fiction where John Travolta gets shot after coming out of the bathroom. And right. then you see him pop up again because you realize, oh, okay, I'm earlier in the story now. Yeah. So there's another thing. There's a context I can put this in, and I'm going to enjoy this on a different level when I reread it. Um, what I kind of find fascinating about Marv is that Marv is not the most woke person in the world. <laughs> he kind of lives in his own little bubble. Um, he also, I mean, obeying or disobeying the law is just something that just doesn't occur to him on a basic level. But... He does have these 
this strong ethics. One of them, he's he's not going to hit ladies. He's not. He's never going to punch a woman, even if it means um, possibly dying in that situation. Like him and Dwight are caught driving into Old Town, and they're right. surrounded. I mean, yeah. Old Town again is an entire section of town, a town run by heavily armed sex workers. And they drive into town and draw a cop in, which is a big no-no. That cop gets machine gunned to shit and runs fleeing for their Jackie life. Jackie boy. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, Jackie um, boy with that. Oh, with the... Yeah, sorry. <laughs> and there's a bit where, where they're surrounded and they've guns pointed at him and Marv just goes, I'm sorry, man. I, I don't hit dames. <laughs> Why is it that I, I can think of... I was reading it and I... For some reason, it occurred to me, I can totally hear Marv saying, if you don't respect my friend's pronouns, your pronouns are going to be was were. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, totally... and at the same time, he's going to go ahead and call his parole officer a dyke. Yeah. Yeah. And right? you yeah. know what? And I and I I respect that, which is really I was I was rewatching the movie last night, actually. And I was sitting there going like, this is actually a wonderful feeling for me to have let go of some of these who might be watching my sins if I don't object like loudly enough to some of these actions because I firmly believe that when you get into a narrative it should not have to abide by a morality that you hold to be worthwhile and fun and interesting and enjoyable and so I found it funny to be sitting and watching Sin City and reflecting on the fact that this has always been something I've enjoyed very much is these kind of like, again, aggressive or hard-boiled stories or people that do bad things are my favorite characters. Mm -hmm. Like I'm a Breaking Bad kind of guy. Like I, I like characters that do bad things because those are the interesting ones. I loathe things like Steven Universe or whatever where mm -hmm. the characters do nothing. <laughs> They do nothing because they are nothing. There's no conflict. They're just stand-ins for something good. Oh, a gauntlet's and dropping. No, I, I'm serious. Uh, because no, when I watch something like Sin City or read something like Sin City, it reminds me that people are more complex than just whether they follow certain rules. And that's kind of cathartic to look at it and see somebody like Marv who, you know, calls her a dyke or whatever, but ultimately really respects her and cares about her in watching the movie you know, last night when they're caught by Kevin, he like gives her a jacket and he's being nicer and everything. And that that's what matters, not necessarily making the right choice, socially speaking, but choosing the right action. But it's interesting of, that. about Marv, too, is that there's a remark that it doesn't make it into the movie because it's part of the, the voiceover that he has where he talks about uh, the fact that he's really attracted to his parole officer, but can't kind of grok the fact that she's a lesbian because yeah. she's so attractive. Like she could have any man she wants. Yeah. yeah. And he makes a remark <laughs> at one point about how he told her she should go get fixed or something and said she clocked him in the mouth mm -hmm. and he let it go. Mm -hmm. And he just kind of is a dinosaur in some ways. And there's no malice in it. But he also frequently frequents Katie's saloon. And Katie is a trans woman who runs a, the dirtiest bar in town. He never misgenders Katie. No, and if you fuck with Katie, he will rip you in half. Yeah. There, there is mean, an understanding there where it's like if Katie too. has trouble. She knows that Marv spots it, so she has the music jacked up so that it'll drown out whatever Marv is going to do to this guy. <laughs> and Nancy getting that, that you know bit monologue, too, where it's like Nancy got roughed up by a frat boy, the kind of thing, you know, and he shows up and helps or whatever. And ever since then, it's like there's this standing sort of thing of like, well, you'll help me with the things I can't do myself. Bring somebody to Nancy's place, I think. I was thinking I was just thinking about 
last night how many things are peppered in there to where it's like you can make these comments about the the women that are around but there is not any indication of disrespect which is interesting to me in the more like moral sounding characters in in stories like particularly pulp detective stories they more frequently disrespect to the to the face these various women and marv seems to be more of a gentlemanly person than some of those like suave characters like james bond's an asshole yeah he's a monster yeah no I, yeah. yeah james <laughs> bond is a monster that, yeah i also think that there's a i don't want to say a misunderstanding but a misread of the 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 place of the femme fatale in noir stories where yeah they are portrayed as duplicitous and 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 two-faced but they that is always portrayed as a strength mm -hmm. when you look at something like double indemnity i mean yeah. uh, uh uh walter neff is he's played for a sap mm -hmm. like he has no power in that situation she's got all of it and even when marv is talking about uh, lucille when he talks about her hitting him, she he says he she hit me hard enough to remind me that there's plenty of steel behind all that heaven. He respects her strength. Yeah. Right. Like he sees her as somebody that is a that could hold her own. And Marv respects that. He respects strength. Uh, so I so this is this is a huge tangent that I got down when I was reading it because I think now that I'm in my 40s my evaluation my reevaluation of something that I read when I was a teenager is totally different and I have to ask the question because of what words that Frank Miller puts into these characters mouths and Frank Miller was a grown-up and he was a person who experienced life and understood people and things um over and over and over again he's draw his characters are dropping racial slurs epithets towards women dropping that other f-bomb a lot and it's telling because he his he's quoted as saying his series this series is response to how he felt that where american and japanese comics were going wrong like he felt american comics are too wordy and japanese comics are too empty and so this is my this is my cure my cure all of this but he keeps putting these words into these characters mm -hmm. mouths in a way that he wants to sort of luxuriate around the language that is not allowed to be used in these other places and it makes me think like is it just his excuse? Is this like an S. Craig Zoller thing? Where are you it's hiding like, behind a character yeah, to say something? Or I mean, has, are you I just mean, giving a character traits that are bad? Right. And But my my second thought is this is something, this is our Radio versus the Martians greater universe thing is maybe Frank Miller has crossed the card line. Maybe this is something where, yes, I'm not, I will never say that his work does not have artistic and cultural merit. I will never say that. But is he such an objectionable person that putting money into his pocket is, I think you know, it's, it's a complicated question. I don't know if everyone here knows what the card line is. Mike. Oh, the the card line basically is named after Orson Scott Card. It's a the card line's a phrase that our good friend Sam Mulvey came up with. The idea being the point at which somebody's real life personality, their real life beliefs, the things they've actually done, are so distasteful and they intrude upon your enjoyment of the media so much that it becomes impossible to partake anymore. And I think, like, for instance, 
there are a lot of fans of Harry Potter that are grappling with this right now because yeah. J.K. Rowling has decided that transphobia is her entire personality now. <laughs> and Triple down it, on that. Not just triple down, but it's just like, you know what? I had a personality before, but this is me now. <laughs> um, and there's some people who do that when they hit controversy. I am made entirely of controversy. Um, and I think Frank Miller, let's be fair – has a complicated relationship with comic book fans. And I think it... <laughs> yeah, see that right there, that reaction. Frank Miller has a complicated relationship with fucking literally everything. <laughs> yes. Frank Miller, and I, I'm going to say this, maybe this is fair or not. Frank Miller is the Mel Gibson of comic books. That's a fair statement. Where, I mean, Mel Gibson that. is a tremendously talented guy who trips over his dick all the time and shows his ass <laughs> so many times. And it's gotten to the point where I can't watch older Mel Gibson in things because all I can think about is him screaming at his wife or yelling uh, anti-Semitic shit at that cop that one time when he got pulled over drunk. Sorry. But he's really talented that he's kind of been shunned off to working in the, I guess you could say the the Kirk Cameron section of movies, but he's the only one in that section that's genuinely talented. How much does anybody engage with the uh, concept of the problematic fave here? I, th I hear that all the time because yeah. I, I am, a, I am a hatful of problematic faves, like especially like trope namer sort of things, like like uh, women in refrigerators. Mm -hmm. I once <laughs> upon a time I felt I had to take a stand and be angry about this, and now I fully admit, kind of like stories like that. I kind of, I kind of find something valuable about these things that I don't. I don't necessarily stand with in real life, but I don't even know how I would answer that question of like, mm -hmm. should I object so heartily to Frank Miller that I not read Frank Miller? Because I, I mean, or like uh, Alan Moore, similarly with me, I have kind of things with, but. But I don't I'll think there's an objective you... answer that we're demanding yeah, from you. Yeah, That's I'm, the thing. I'm just is thinking right, right. about that out loud, I suppose. Uh, sometimes I enjoy the work so much. Uh, again, like with what Casey said, knowing how frequently he's using these kind of words and things like that and i just click over this different setting in my brain when mm -hmm. i consume those types of media that says what is the title of the goddamn book mm -hmm. sin city why am i surprised i shouldn't be does this offend me in the fictional world no because it fits the logic of that world and so I mean it's hard for me to feel offense even for words that i know should upset me and like as a queer person like i again watching the movie last night hearing someone call someone a dyke is just going yeah okay that makes sense for a person who isn't you think you think marv fucking went to like sociology classes do you think he went you know to fucking get his ba or something and like learn about all the ists and isms kind of doubt it yeah, yeah. But, you know? but to but me I it's like the, the, the marv <laughs> thing is interesting because he becomes the focus for of you thinking of being like this was our focus for the conversation is like marv can be a guy that is has problematic elements but also is a hero and also is the only way that the the best way for the viewer to be able to use as the cipher for what sin city is but sin city exists much bigger than what marv is oh, yeah and i think the, yeah. the further you zoom out the more you start seeing the commonalities of what Frank Miller wants to do with this universe and this character, and obviously he he develops the the universe that is in in a, in a pretty grandiose way, I would say, beyond the Marv story. And I, I it was just from a personal level, 
from a personal level, this time was really hard for me. Huh. It was really hard because I would get it, and I wouldn't it wouldn't be like, oh, I'm shocked and I'm, I'm shocked and my 2021 sensibilities are making it be like, you know, what wa- finger wagging at Frank Miller. It was like I can no longer locate a section of distance for me to have like you would when you were like 15, 14 or 15 where you have titillation you just have the idea that you get to see and witness and read and absorb this stuff that is unlike anything else you've read before you're sort of titillated by how uh transgressive it is mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. i can no longer locate a distance beyond sort of a beyond sort of a really detached idea about how beautiful the aesthetics are and how he's using tropes that i could easily locate and you know you could cut some violence and and nudity out of some situations and realize that it could be a humphrey bogart movie like you could yeah. just you could end some parts there and you'd be like this would be a fantastic 1930s or 40s gangster movie this would be amazing you wouldn't you wouldn't have to change anything the nouns the verbs would all be the same you just cut stuff off but i as i moved through i kept being like it's harder and harder for me to want to mm-hmm. keep reading these but things but that's the frank miller of it all yeah and, and maybe it, maybe it is that but the weight of it cumulatively was being like i don't know how i feel about this anymore i mean it's, it's, it's ultimately excess. It, it, the excess is what it's it is. Excess, it's it's yeah. kind of like you have these sort of Mickey Spillane style narration and you've got this sort of crime noir vibe. Um, but it's sort of shot through the, the veins of just this hard Jack Kirby bombast where everything is as big as possible. Like Marv fights 20 cops at once, dives out of a third story window onto some trash, does like a double double flying kick through a cop's windshield beats up two cops and drives their car away. (laughs) Everything is, is always sort of set at 11. And I was thinking about, you know, sort of taking this too, is I was probably more critical of Sin City now than I had been when we had our first conversation. But I think part of it (laughs) is that growing up is about having complicated feelings about media that you grew up loving. And, you know, I imagine that if you're somebody in certain marginalized groups, that you have a fucking head start on that over white guys like me, because you kind of have no choice but to have complicated relationships with the things you love. I remember there was a story at one point that because of the racial stereotypes in Speedy Gonzalez cartoons, that they were getting cut out of, of Bugs Bunny broadcasts. And the people who got the angriest were like Mexican-Americans because shitty representation was the only shitty representation they had. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, that's sorry. That's like I am growing up, or I grew up as the woman in the room here. I wouldn't be able to watch Jack fucking shit, Jack shit, if I went to like the movies. There is nothing I can goddamn watch if I have to stick with my personal convictions and my feelings about how I'm treated in the world, and I go into everything with the baggage of navigating the world as a chick. Do you think I'd be sitting in this room? No. There's no way. Yeah. There's no way I would be involved in yeah. comics, like or interested in that stuff, in video games. Most of my favorite things are things that I am fodder. Uh, like my yeah. existence is fodder or something to consume by the majority of the people that enjoy it with me. And I live with that all the time. And I can't spend my 35 years of life cutting myself away from things I could and do potentially end up enjoying because it's not going to make me feel it's not about making myself feel good mm-hmm. i don't know it, it 
I don't know how to put it. I think one of my thing, one of the things I always come back to about Frank Miller is that I do have conflicted feelings about so much of his work. There's no defense for, I mean, what really struck me this time is how many F-bombs are in this. That's because true. to me, it's, it's, I, it's, it's something I always forget. Marv is the only quote unquote good guy that uses it. But even if it was just bad guys, I feel the same way about Garth Ennis using the N-word in Preacher where it's yeah. like, okay, we get it. He's a bad guy. Maybe a good writer would have been able to convey that without the copious use of racial epithets and and uh, homophobic slurs and implied rape because these are all crutches. But part of it is also this is a work that came out in a time when that was just kind of how you conveyed things. I think Frank Miller is going for a very specific aesthetic and I, where I think, well, okay, the question then becomes, well, why not Why not just not have Marv say that at all? Why even put that in there? And that's a good question, and I don't have an answer for it. Uh, I, I guess I can I can hazard a guess, which is that it reminds you that Marv is not refined, that Marv is yeah. a caveman in He's some ways. He's very coarse. Yeah. And where did he grow up? And, you know, it's, again, you look at the setting. Look at the setting. Like, it doesn't make sense to expect things to be restrained or, like, a little more docile than they are because the whole point of Sin City is that it's just ridiculousness. Oh, like absolutely. The whole, everything yeah. from from the the authority of, you know, authority and government and everything else down to the tiniest cell of a human being is existing in a state of pure corruption. Mm-hmm. Like, I even the good people, they come out of... They they come out with ex- the way they express themselves makes it clear that you are in a soup of this, just like in real life, you live in a world with complicated things going on all around you and complicated backgrounds and everything else. And the the world you live in, they always say, if the world you live in is racist, it's like that's the water you swim in. You're not going to get away from it. You're going to always be influenced by your environment. And I I think that's the case with Frank Miller, too, because if you ask yourself, what's going on in action movies at the time that this comic is written? What's going on even in music? Mm -hmm. Like, just everything about the culture seemed to be gearing toward this idea of excess and dirtiness and... Kind of, kind of this acceptance of that. But I think there's a the cultural context too in comic books was yeah. that we'd had how many decades of Comics Code Authority. Yes. And suddenly there was a freedom from this that for a long time you couldn't portray cops in a negative light, which mm-hmm. means any light that's accurate. <laughs> um, you couldn't show any kind of civil authority figure. Good guys always had to win. You couldn't even say the word werewolf for, for a couple decades until like the 70s. And there was just this gradual loosening of the comics code from a very sort of repressive 1950s conformity bullshit that basically strangled EC Comics and Tales from the Crypt out of existence. And Sin City was one of the first major works of art. I mean, it started in the 80s with people like Alan Moore and Frank Miller himself. But this thing is totally unrestrained by the comics code. So he can do all the things that comics haven't been allowed to do. And part of the weird freedom of it at that time was you hadn't seen it before. And I think as you see with everything with this kind of freedom is that you go crazy for a while yeah, and then you pull it back. Exactly. Because the 60s. <laughs> I said all the naughty words that I wasn't allowed to say and now they don't have the same impact. And I'm also a lot more thoughtful about it because now I'm kind of understanding that, you know, being shocking in and of itself isn't necessarily clever. But I think um, 
the the thing I get with Sin City 2, and this is a part I kind of keep coming back to, is that occasionally Frank Miller impresses me. Not because I think he's super woke or he's clearly read out of some gender studies book or something, but he does something where he pulls back from the expected awful place my knee-jerk assumption assumes he's about to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yep. the, the best, biggest example of this is in probably my favorite volume of this entire sub-series of, of miniseries, which is That Yellow Bastard. Yeah. yeah. Ah. Uh, Hardigan is probably the one truly good guy protagonist that Frank Miller has in this entire series. Yep. He's the one good cop in a town of dirty cops that he's an old man who rescues a young girl from a child molester slash serial killer and to protect her life allows himself to be framed for all this guy's crimes because that guy is a son of a senator. Yeah. So he's basically kind of this book of Job set of suffering that he goes through because he knows that if he tries to fight it, they're going to kill this little girl. And he gets basically baited into confessing everything so he can get out of prison earlier. Um, and then lead them to this girl who's sending him letters. They don't mm-hmm. know that it's Nancy yet. Yeah. And what I kind of love is that there's a moment where Nancy gets kidnapped by this guy again, who's been horribly disfigured into a yellow goblin man. <laughs> um, I kind of love just how repulsive he is. Oh, I, yeah. I also love the fact that they, it's the first time that he really, I think maybe Silent Night was the first time that he did it where there was an addition of a splash of color. Yeah. But I yeah. love that he he takes his own motif and just be like, there's just going to be something weird in yeah. this. And it's yellow. It's disruptive because everything in, in Sin City, it's not like when you see with manga or with uh, The Walking Dead where there's grayscale on top of it. No, it's either stark white, stark black, and suddenly there's a bright yellow character. Yeah. And just how jarring that is. So he does kidnap Nancy and his big thing is that he wants to make women scream because he can't get off on murdering them unless he makes them scream and Nancy isn't giving him that. And what I kind of love is the scene where he's naked and whipping a woman tied up in a barn, which is about as exploitative and creepy an image. Now you go, okay, oh shit, how is Frank Miller going to draw this? (laughs) Because Frank Miller is, he is no stranger to the male gaze in his artwork. Um, if, If the male gaze was like a character in an Adam Sandler movie, it'd be like Rob Schneider, where you guarantee he's getting at least a cameo in every movie. Right. <laughs> and so you go into this barn and something amazing happens. The camera is not on Nancy while he's whipping her. You see yeah. her in the shadows and she's off on the side. It would be the easiest thing in the world to turn this into a thing where, yes, this is the bad guy. Yes, he's doing a bad thing. But the reader gets to get off on this b- creepy bullshit the same way the villain does. And he refuses to do that. The nudity you see is the goblin man's nudity. <laughs> yeah. well, and this happens also, actually, with uh, Kevin being dismembered and stuff in the in the forest. And they call the wolf. Like, I, I found that notable, too, that, like... The option could be that we're seeing chunks of this person being pulled off. And at some level, we could be really excited about that as a reader to be like, this guy was hanging women's heads on the wall and stuff like that. And it could be really like cathartic and like you just get down in the muck with what's going on and just watch this guy get pulled apart in graphic detail. Like watch all these like guts come out. But that happens in silhouette. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, every time I get to that part and that page... It just like I get I get chills. It scares the piss out of me that I can't see it, 
it's so much worse when you can't see it. It's just like the Loch Ness Monster. You're uh, forced to wonder. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, and that's, I don't know, that's really special to no, me. Yeah, I, I find right. that way more terrifying. Yeah. I think you both just hit on something. Mm-hmm. So I always think about this in the context of comedy. And I think I might have spoken about this, right? There's a lot of comics these days, a lot, well, until Dave Chappelle started with his shit, which you can feel the way you want to. I'm, I'm really worried he's going to make that his whole personality. Yeah. Yeah. It's entirely possible, but please don't, it's, Dave Chappelle. It's, it's a lot of media, it's a lot of like middle aged white dudes talking about the culture and how you can't make jokes anymore and blah, blah, blah. And my, my question is always is it funny? I recently on TikTok, somebody posted Don Rickle speaking at Shirley MacLaine's like Academy Appreciation Party or something. 86 years old, guy kills, does not say one offensive thing. Everybody is laughing because he's a funny guy, right? That was funny then. It's funny now, 30 years later, 20 years later. Um, And comedy doesn't age well, so that's amazing. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing. At the end of the day, yeah. Plenty of comics had said plenty of problematic things. George Carlin said a shit ton of problematic things. Were you laughing? Then it was successful. We can have the conversation about the problematic aspect of it. That's an important conversation to have. And that's my same thing with Frank Miller. Yeah, those F-bombs make me really uncomfortable. I don't like them. At the end of the day, though, he manages... At least for those first four books, I think they kind of skew in quality after That Yellow Bastard. The choices he makes... The things, the actions of the main characters, not only are my entertained, I am compelled. Yeah. Marv yeah. does a lot more with his actions than he does with what he's saying. Yeah. And there are so many. The, that scene with Nancy is not the only time when he could fetishize the damseling of a woman or violence against women, and he doesn't. Mm-hmm. I found myself thinking about Fury Road. Yes. And why the, huh. one of the most yes. successful things in Fury Road is that you know that those women, the wives, were subjected mm-hmm. to violence without ever having to see it. Mm-hmm. And I think Frank Miller does that masterfully in most of these books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You Now, does he fetishize women? Yes. Does he need maybe a couple sessions with a dominatrix to kind of explore that part of his his Gale. personality? Like, yeah, I mean, yeah, he probably does. I, 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 and that's that's him. He's clearly. Got, I was talking to somebody the other day. They're like, I think he hates women. I was like, I don't think. He hates women. I think he's got a very complicated relationship with women. <laughs> There's that word again. But and that's the thing is that at the end of the day, Frank Miller will often make you think he's going right and then go left. And you're like, that is not the choice that nine out of 10 creators would have made. And it actually is at the expense of the villain, where yeah. normally it's at the expense of the victim. So here's here's my biggest thing about why I accept the the messiness and the again like certain words and things being used when i look at the people the characters that those words are being used on or toward and i look at how he or he treats those characters i see more to make an actual rounded character out of gail with her handcuffs out of Nancy with her, you know, being a stripper and all this, then I see in half the writers in comics anyway toward women. And that matters to me Mm -hmm. that, yes, you may have your sexy parole officer, but she has traits other than being a sexy lesbian that's here for you. She has a personality that's distinct, you know, and and, you know, Gail and stuff. Same thing. These women have grown up in horrible circumstances, 
horrible conditions. And they have these, uh, almost all of their innate quality is almost always just based on strength. They're strong for surviving and survivors. In that sense, you could say they're painted with the same brush. However, you also have characters like Nancy that there's a point made that she she likes to read. She likes to research. Yes, she is a sexual being. Yes, she has experienced these kind of traumas. And strangely, she turned around from a traumatic situation like that. And her solution is to control every single dude in the room by the fact that they can't touch her. That's what that's what it was to be a dancer. It's like and the one time someone does, it's like that's not that's not on the table. And Marv might be there. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's like the they, they talked about that frat boy roughing her up and it's just same thing as like they they survived these horrible circumstances by becoming stronger. Hardigan at one point when, you know, he returns and they reconnect and everything. It's like one of the first things is like her saying, like, I, I tried so hard to show you how strong I became. That that was a motivating factor. That mm-hmm. if somebody treats her with kindness in a place like that, if somebody treats her with respect and cares about her, that motivates this strength. Well, that's, so it's that's not Marv just I'm too. a hard dame. She's a caring, yeah. warm person still. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of the same story with Marv, which is that a single act of kindness in a place that's just made out of shit. Yeah, like Goldie. Yeah, you know, Goldie he does everything for Goldie. And he keeps saying that over and over is she was nice to me. Do you think looking like me in the movie thing too, they just kind of go, I can't even buy a woman. And that's the moment that, you know, that uh, Wendy turns and kind of looks at him and kind of assesses him differently, where it's like, it matters to you how people treat you knowing that the world is cruel. Yeah, but he's also not, Feel he doesn't have incel rage. Well, too, which I was is just gonna no. say, Marv is not a fucking incel, <laughs> and right? And Dwight. Yeah, yeah, and that's that is something that is really apparent. I think that the other thing that is really interesting is that Frank Miller manages to do something in Sin City with all this other problematic shit that's going on, where characters are gay because they're gay, yeah. not because it's a plot device, right. not because it furthers the the story, but just because people in everyday life are gay. Yeah, people. That's just a thing that happens, right? Katie is is trans because she's trans, yeah. not because it serves some nefarious person, not because she's going to be the victim of violence. They don't do a a, a gay panic joke no, with her. They don't. No. They don't treat it as a joke. She's she's just somebody who runs this bar, and everyone respects her. Yeah. Nobody yeah. misgenders yeah. her in mm-hmm. the probably the cruelest, dirtiest place in the whole fucking world. She's one of the most important people, and people respect her authority. And mm-hmm. so it's it turns out to be this really weird and this is the goddamnest thing about frank miller is that he's doing this you have marv just saying yeah frat boy roughed her up when 10 other creators would have been like oh they took her out to the forest and they stabbed her with hot forks and like (laughs) really because he's not fetishizing that he's saying don't that story is told not to give you sympathy towards Nancy, but to let you know people don't fuck with Nancy because Marv is there and Marv will dissect you using only his hands. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's that's all he needs. Because you were nice to him. And it's again when he and Lucille are locked up in in that room in the farm in that dungeon, mm-hmm. um, he's he's trying to knock the door down. He is running at a steel door yeah. with his body. <laughs> so and eventually it. he so wins. He body destroys the, knocks this thing off its hinges, but he's talking to Lucille and she knows that the cops are hunting him. And mm-hmm. he's, he's basically going to hell and back. 
He doesn't care who he kills or who, who he has to break to get revenge on the murder of this woman who was nice to him once. She slept to him, slept with him and, and treated him like a, a regular guy. And he just absolutely loves her. He knows she only did it for protection and he wants to live up to that protection now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Lucille says to him uh, just casually that she was a prostitute and Marv just says, that changes nothing. Yeah. And yeah. Hardigan, mm-hmm. it's the same thing with Hardigan. It's like, you know, they, they get him in jail and everything else like that. And the specific monologue for him is when you've made the decision to save this little girl's life, you don't turn around on it. Mm-hmm. I love that. That like stick to where like, yes, you have the big tough guys that barrel through it. You also have the, you know, the the like Lone Ranger sort of character and this like, again, one good cop sort of deal going where it's like you won't stop me because I care about believing that there's justice in the world even in a place as stupid and crazy as this you have Dwight that's like a murderer like and and it was clear that he had some mental problems in there too and it was like yeah I'm just going to do everything humanly possible to make sure these women don't end up under the thumb of the mafia or slaves again and you know and and Gail that he respects Again, because she's strong, because she wants to run things on her own. And I I think that's a really beautiful thing that, yes, these characters are complicated people with like complicated histories. But you find that one little kernel of not kernel, really a a little beam of light in a place that terribly dark. And suddenly it's like your past and the bad things you've done. There's hope there. One of my other favorite things about that yellow bastard, Hardigan doesn't fuck Nancy on a roof. Yes, yeah. he doesn't. Yes. Looking at you, Brian Azzarello, you fucking <laughs> asshole. Yeah, like, like the- it's almost like that is not the nature of their relationship. And he knows that. And he knows that having sex with Nancy would be taking advantage of her. And yeah. he is setting a fucking boundary. He and even boundary. when she says that she, you know, yeah. loves him yeah. and they put some degree of that in there too, where they could have treated this, oh, you're my hero, eh, blah, blah, blah. Like she, you know, they could have just made her like completely fall apart thing because that happens in a lot of these like crime books, yeah. you know, where that happens in like countless fantasy books and other things is just like every guy wants somebody just a woman to just be crazy for him. Yeah. But there's never this situation yeah. where there's this woman that everyone wants to fuck and they're all yeah. mean to her. Yeah. And then the one guy that's nice like to her, her deserves yes. to <laughs> fuck her <laughs> now. Yes. yes. Yeah. They don't they don't go that direction. And I think that's he actually incredible. says I'm old enough to be your grandfather. And you yeah. see him get deeply uncomfortable with the fact that he is kind of attracted to her. And he just yeah. shuts it down. Yeah. Goes and takes a close I shower. feel like. <laughs> yeah it's that shit that Miller does. I think he, he does all these, the heroes with the exception of Dwight, all the heroes. Mm. So in the forties, uh, because of the Hayes code, you couldn't have the bad guy win. That's mm-hmm. why the original oceans, I'm about to spoil a bunch of really old movies. So I guess <laughs> skip forward. Hashtag cancel Joe Pretty. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready. All right. Cancel I've been canceled the on the small term. I need to get canceled a little bit bigger. It's it'd probably be good for my image. Um, <laughs> your new comedy. Your my new, new, my new edgy comedy image. <laughs> it's called hashtag triggered. <laughs> oh my God. A Gen Xer doing this. I can't wait. This must be the first time. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. yeah. I have complex thoughts about my generation. But um, I think that you have a complicated relationship with your generation. Yeah, weird, weird. <laughs> complicated relationship maybe with complications. I'm, yeah. Maybe I'm the one with the complicated relationships. Um, so in the because of the Hayes Code, if somebody 
uh, committed a crime, they couldn't get away with it. They right. had to die because the whole crime doesn't pay thing, right? Which right. is why you get some of the greatest endings. You get the ending of Asphalt Jungle. You get the end, the, uh, yeah. the ending of, um, uh, what was Kubrick's uh, movie? Killing. With- the killing. the killing, yeah, yep. great fuck, one of the yep. best fucking endings in cinema. You get the o- ending of Ocean's Eleven, which, strangely enough, not as good as the remake with Clooney. I just, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, come at me, hashtag cancel me if you dare. Um, but the heroes in Sin City, they're the one. Like, I don't know about y'all, but when I finish that first trade, and Marv dies, I'm like, wow. oh, he's gonna get out. Yeah. Wait, is it? Is, is Marv like? Am I not getting out of this? Yeah. But wait, how can how can that happen? And then Miller does this really brilliant thing where he sets almost the rest of that continuity in this weird liminal space yeah. between the beginning and the end of that first Sin City book, The Hard Goodbye. Mm-hmm. So Marv ends up as you know where he's going, but right. he's kind of still around in that in the rest of the stories, which is done in a really cool way. But Hardigan too. It's like you don't expect that. Yeah. Right? So many heroes are like, yeah, I'm gonna do this. And I'm then they're bust like, no, this I'm... wide open. Yeah. Oh, and then God, they're like, like yeah, and I'm gonna get away with it. And like Hardigan's like, no, man, like this is the only way this can end. And it's yeah, that finality when like Marv's like, I signed the confession because they come in and tell me if I don't, they're gonna kill my mom. Break mm-hmm. his arm in three yeah, places yeah, and sign I, it. I, I yeah. sign yeah, I break his arm in three places <laughs> and I Marv. sign it. And it's it's like, no, Marv knew. Yeah. Marv knew the whole time that this yeah. was He went after the guy who ran Sin City. Yeah. He went after Rutger Hauer, even after <laughs> right. his incredible monologue at the end of Blade Runner. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean he knew that once you went after this guy, everyone talked in hushed tones about going after Rourke. And he's just it's kinda reminds me a little bit of there's a bit in, in Huck Finn about if I help if I help this slave, I'm gonna go to hell. And Huck Finn has this moment, he's like, Well, I guess I'm just going to go to hell then. Yeah, right. worth dying yeah. for, worth killing for, for, worth going, going to hell, hell for. <laughs> yeah. That's what it, you know, it's it's in the text. <laughs> and that's it's he manages to do this thing where he sets the stakes in the hard goodbye, and those stakes don't ever change. Yeah, yeah I would yeah. argue they that never when you go to hell and back. It kind of goes off the rails. Okay, I mean, in well, so that's, many that's, ways. So this is yeah. what, and I'm glad you brought that because, up because, because it's really far away. It's like the you know the eighth Police Academy movie or whatever. Yeah, like, yeah. we're really right. really far away from the genesis of this. So you thing. Said, it's Leprechaun in space. It's, yes. Yeah, you said Marv was Batman, and I I was thinking that, and then I disagreed. There, are, I hmm. think some very differences. The main character of of Helen Back is fucking just murder Batman. He is just murder Batman. <laughs> yeah. That story is so fucking weird yeah it is so unlike everything that comes before and there's things i really like about it me too but there's also shit where i'm like what the fuck where is the tension here it's a transitional (laughs) form between sin city frank miller and latter day frank miller absolutely yes i don't really like a lot of stuff about latter day frank miller i mean you go to things like dark knight strikes again and that doesn't even encount i mean the stuff that he would do later where it's just this weird kind of xenophobic reactionary just kind of hateful bullshit that he did after 9-11 like he did uh 300 which basically takes the 
the slave Sparta state that right. that is a and favorite of fascists it. everywhere and deifies them as the the saving democracy from the brown hordes from the east. I still <laughs> see decals on the back of trucks near JBLM that are like three hundred decals, and nah. when I drive to work, and that just tells me something where it's like again glorification of a war state. Like it's just. Bleh. I mean, yeah. it's a state yeah. that throughout the impure, there is a reason that Nazis yeah. like the fucking Spartans so much. Yep. And then the idea that, oh, you have to save, you know, civilization from, you know, them. And then you have something that goes even further, which was originally supposed to be a Batman story. But DC was like, whoa, that's racist, uh, which was holy terror, yeah. which mm-hmm. was Batman versus Al-Qaeda. And, you know, it's stuff like that where he just went on this place. I know he's softened on this in recent years and he showed regret for that. But Jesus Christ, guys, it's like the same thing. Like Mel Gibson was drinking and said some really racist shit. That wasn't manufactured by the alcohol. That stuff still came That's, out of your brain. It comes from you. It's magnified from, they always say alcohol doesn't like create a separate beast. It just magnifies who you are. I, I'm glad yeah. that Frank Miller has softened on that. But I think you can say in Helen Back, there's the, the ink, inklings of that beginning of that next Frank Miller. It's kind of like when you watch Return of the Jedi. There are elements of prequel George Lucas in that movie. <laughs> yes, They're there small. Are. He walks. <clears throat> he walks a part of it, but I really Sorry. think um, there are two burp jokes in that movie <laughs> yes. that everyone forgets about, That's including true. a frog that burps That's and true. a sarlacc pig that burps. <laughs> and it's like every except. Hey, the Sarlacc pit, you know, it's a person. It's got. It's really. It's. I'm really uncool with you body shaming the Sarlacc pit. Okay. I, it's just, I mean, you know what it's like coming up as a young Sarlacc on Tatooine. Do you know the standards they're held to, Mike? Come on, man. Listen, if you know. have to slowly digest your food over a thousand years, you're going to get gassy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it just happens. There's no, there's no Tums on Tatooine. There are no Tums. Yeah, there's no Tums on Tatooine. That's uh... There so, is, however, blue milk. So. Oh, yeah. with, with that, let's take a quick break, and oh, we'll yeah. be back with more Sin City. Yes, excess. <laughs> and action! It's Fade Out. Hosted by film fanatic Rob Kelly and a roster of special guests, Fade Out will examine the final films of Hollywood's brightest lights, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. And we are back on Radio vs. the Martians this month. We are talking about Frank Miller's Sin City. And we're getting right back into it. I think if there's one thing that Sin City is known for, the, the one of its big legacies is the artwork mm-hmm. by Frank Miller. I talked to before, stark black and white. At times it almost kind of looks like a shadow play. where, Or maybe even like an amazing jack-o'-lantern. Where there's just this minimalism mixed with this hyper detail that you have... And you mentioned before, you know, the the sort of the 
the marriage of like Eastern and Western comic sensibilities. And one of those we talked about during the episode we did on Akira, which is sometimes the sense of scale in manga is done with tiny figures against these giant backdrops. And there's a lot of that in Sin City. Hmm. Like the moment where Hardigan goes into the barn and it's like this giant white space with this tiny figure walking into a black rectangle. And then the slats between, you know, the bar, the barn it's like these black lines where the negative space and the, the black shadows are like alluding to a shape. And you get that with cars. You get that with, with the cityscape. And it's kind of fucking incredible. I mean, what do you guys think about the art of Sin City? Brutal sophistication. That's, <laughs> no, yeah. that's the phrase that kept coming up in my head when I was looking at it again is that it's this perfect, again, black and white concept of brutal sophistication yes you do have all these again like chick titty sort of situations where it's like yes you've you've got some detail in there there could be more it could actually be more lurid in those senses but I actually see a lot of restraint in the art where the words sparse as they may be are bolstering the art a little bit um but but yes, it also, I think the black and white just as an emphasis of like the idea that you believe that the world is black and white, the idea that you believe people can be is constantly put into question by these characters that are gray, morally gray. They use that word a lot in the series, too. Mm -hmm. They do say, like, I'm caught in a gray hell or I'm yes. caught in a gray dream or something. It comes up a lot. And Dwight says it. Marv says it. And it's a story that literally has no literal gray in it yeah yeah i think it's done in this really specific way because as as well as scale it also i think what the art does is denote the loneliness of sin city there's yeah. no crowd scenes yeah it is often just marv on the side of a building or walking into somewhere the only crowds you see are the cannon fodder yeah. Really. That's the only time you really see more than a couple people on the page together. Sin City is a very Unless lonely... it's an army of bad guys yeah, coming exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Or all the girls. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Right? Like, it's very rarely... We very rarely see the main characters with more than one or two other people. And when we do, they're either getting ready to murder everybody or they're planning something. Oh. It's it is like so uh, in architecture brutalism is I was just gonna is brutalism yeah it's like using concrete it's poured concrete to make the walls yeah um, and it's a style I really like so Evergreen the Evergreen State College is largely a brutalist structure and there's a lot of it in downtown Olympia on the Capitol campus um, if you remember Total Recall as fans of our show should all the stuff on Earth is all brutalist yes it's everywhere yeah. they shoot is these giant stark like angular concrete walls. They're hard and they are sharp and they are stark, but there is a beauty, especially when like a lot of the way they'll do it is they'll board, they'll make a wall with boards and then pour, pour the concrete in between. Yeah. So you get this board marked concrete and then they'll polish the floors. So from the outside, it'll look like this impregnable, unbreachable fortress. And then you walk in and it's very delicate and you've got this incredible wood grain that has marked itself permanently on the concrete walls. And you have this incredibly buffed, beautiful, shining floor. That's what the art and this 
and hmm. uh, like for the first four volumes, I want to be really specific. <laughs> yeah. Shit really takes a turn after that yellow bastard. Yes, it well, does. This this emphasizes too, like the the brutalist architecture emphasizes again the impregnable nature of living in a place like this where governments systems of power and things are these fortresses they are these things that just protect certain people and that the average person trying to get in to change anything Mm -hmm. or to fight back or to individually even dissent from the way things go it emphasizes the beauty and the bravery of that act i think and even when characters like marvin and others are squared off like the buildings they're drawn in this very square sort of manner um it's funny because you you see the strength and the stoutness but you see the humanity and the scars and the bandages and the Mm -hmm. only details that you're getting in the art that i'm coming to notice is that the men receive details in the form of injury right Mm -hmm. so scars bandages blood things like this if you give detail to male characters in this the emphasis is on pain the emphasis is on the beauty of fighting back. That's the detail. On the women, however, there are these decorative elements that are really interesting that also emphasize the city at large. Um, so again, I'm coming out of the movie just yesterday, and my Becky, that's her name, um, Alexa Bledel or whatever plays her, and she's got all these crosses on, and she's a prostitute. So the details on her are this beautiful jewelry in the form of crosses, and that's a little hint too that it's like Goldie worked the clergy and that that yeah. was even a possibility. And then Gail, her appeal, of course, being the warrior woman, it's all just like the straps, the leather, the like fishnet, the things like that all of her detailed elements only serve to emphasize the core nature of her character. And in the case of Goldie, it's all those curls, all that hair, and then all of the ruching and the ruffles on the dress, yeah. the texture of her which is the key element of her is she is a textural being to this person somebody that gave something in the form of of touch of tenderness and her hair and her curls and this like femininity thing is like like hyper emphasized so the goddess element of that almost like greek hair you know and the way clothing drapes in the case of nancy you know, you've got the the cowgirl sort of thing. And yes, that's a, you know, you've got, yes, she's a stripper and everything else. But I love that they talk about her having a gun because it integrates well into what she wears <laughs> as a stripper. She has a cowboy gun, right? Which emphasizes Hardigan's character as this lone ranger kind of thing, this cowboy riding in to save people. And, you know, of course, with the star of being a, police officer that like I don't know I I find that truly interesting is that the only time too when the badge the badges are shown it's either like a mark of oh god everything's terrible because the law is here or in the case of Dwight having been shot or whatever he's protected by the badge because he's actually a good person Mm -hmm. he's actually a lone ranger and so when there are these details they tell you a significant amount about the character's motivations and core sense of self Mm -hmm. Um, at least that's the way I've always kind of looked at it and read it I just love looking at those little details but the way that those things are typically drawn sometimes is these characters will be in a harsh black silhouette but those details you're talking about stand out 
would be stark white and they're actually they're cut into it the the big probably most famous example is marv that he's this big hulking dude and he's just covered in bandages through the second half of this storyline and they'll have him in total black silhouette but the bandages will still be on him in white yeah sort of crisscrossing his face and his arms and everything and that's the stuff that i really like and the fact that you mix this the fact that there are enough context clues like a merle haggard song that i looked up that is from 1990 and you mix that with the fact that there are these kind of mid-century cars. Like, there's a car that uh, Marv steals at one point because he just like can't. electric shavers. Yeah. <laughs> like, he loves the idea that he gets to drive a Tucker. There were only so many of them. And he immediately crashes it into the side of a guy and throws him off the road. And I, I kind of love the idea that there's these elements that feel of an earlier time. And when people start saying things like, it really gets my gut when somebody knocks around a dame. Yeah. Um, it really steams me. I was yeah. plenty steamed. Steamed hands. Steamed hands. The, the first uh, Sin City book that I read was, this is, I was at the working at the comic book store for the year plus that it actually existed. Um, the first thing I read was Silent Night, which was actually, I think, the first um, wordless comic book that i ever read um, there's probably a lot of examples of of wordless comic books mm-hmm. out there that it as, as a precedent but i was just it was impressed by the idea not just that the artwork looked like nothing that you'd ever seen clearly frank miller was not the first artist to ever use chiaroscuro between black and white and negative space to make to make things pop right um but i i was like duly impressed by the fact that hey there's this beautiful story that is told. There's no there's no audio on in a comic book. There are also no words in the story, and you got what the idea was. So Frank Miller's um, amazing ability to use that art style as a way for visual storytelling, where he doesn't even need the words. He doesn't right. even need the gritty voiceover. You know, it's the visual storytelling of the the graphic novel of comic books is so important, and oftentimes, I think Frank Miller was really big about that like show don't tell and it's it's always nice because he's practiced sin city is a is a an exercise in that yeah the visual style is so strong that one of the one of my favorite things about sin city is that you see the same characters pop up and you're never going oh is that the same guy yeah. Yeah. You know, right. you know, yeah. immediately when you see them, it's the same dude or same, same, like, like you see Gail in the hard goodbye. When you see her again in a dame to kill for, you know exactly who she yep. is. Yeah. 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 And I think that that is so hard. When you look at something like Steve Dillon's art on Preacher, Steve Dillon's a very competent uh, artist, but amazing in face expressions. So, yeah. ma- but so many dudes have the same face. And, <clears throat> And, like, I've read other things that he's done. He did a Punisher book. And I'm like, oh, there's Jesse Custer. (laughs) Um, Yeah, John Byrne has the same problem. Yeah, and I think some artists do now. I think that that's just that's you're fine. going They're still for great artists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not trying to take away anything. I think Steve Steve Dillon is fantastic, and Preacher is another book that I have very complicated <laughs> feelings about. Preacher, uh, it's uh. another book that I always uh, we've we've said before. Um, Frank Miller is not somebody that ages well in the mind. Um, I Preacher is another one like that. I always remember Preacher a lot harder, and then I read it, and I'm like, oh, no, there was a lot of good stuff in this. There was a lot of really good stuff in this. Like, it deserved a lot of the acclaim it got. I think Frank Miller, though, when you look at, like, he did, so he did Hard Boiled with Jeff Darrow in 1990, mm. which is kind of this mm-hmm. hard-boiled sci-fi yep. weirdness. And it's so amazing to me the feel of that and how utterly and completely different 
Sin City is. Right. Because Jeff Darrow's art is so detailed and so lends itself to a very specific kind of storytelling. No, I don't nobody else could have done this art. I don't well, it would not have come out nearly as well. Like you needed Frank Miller's the way he does things to make this yeah. story work. He's also stepping out of his own comfort zone too. This has elements that look you can tell that Dark Knight Returns is done by the same guy. Yeah. But this is like him going, I'm doing an experiment here with black and white and shadows and tone mm. and mood. And I don't think he's ever really gone back to this. And it's it's shocking how cool it looks. Yeah. I think that there is no other way I could read Sin City or that it could be illustrated because the very nature of the story is from a highly cinematic place that's influenced heavily from, again, these action movies, these detective stories. Um, I think about, you know, I... I think about film noir things and I think about how frequently you use light and shadow in that, mm-hmm. you know, and how could you possibly tell a story with this tone without a high emphasis on that? It's kind of like, I think, I think about how important mood is to choosing the right illustrator for something. Um, because the, the core example for me is always looking at the difference between uh, dream hunters with Yoshitaka Mano and the watercolor and dream hunters with P Craig Russell which is just massive disappointment. There's, really? I've there never heard no, those words for Pete Craig Russell before. There's no majesty. Oh. There's no mystery. <laughs> there's no dream to it versus if you look at Yoshitaka Manos, are you talking about like the, the king of dreams and there's these, there's these textures and patterns, but they swim like fish. Mm-hmm. They move in a dreamlike quality when you have these things that emphasizes the mood of this myth, almost mythological story. So it's very similar with Sin City for me is you could give me a highly detailed sort of like, here's the detective's room with all these, you know, little elements in the back or or here's like every little bit of, you know, even just like the clothing and things of the prostitutes, very, very well drawn woman, you know, like technically speaking. But I get so much more out of getting mostly just eyes, lips, face hair texture Mm -hmm. because that's the mythologizing of that too you know with again with goldie is this idea that she's a collection of these just generalized qualities of beauty idealized Mm -hmm. and i i think i think that's one of the biggest reasons that i actually admit to loving frank miller because i i think that again it's really really easy to just go completely the direction of like i'm going to give you as much of this titillation as possible but a limitation a slight limitation makes it almost better mm-hmm. yeah yeah if that makes sense sin city was the first time i saw nudity in a comic book yeah yeah and sure. i think after 20 plus years of of being back into comics and reading comics and seeing things that people like Garth Ennis have done and, and, and other things, I still think it's one of the best. Like it's really so much of the nudity in Sin City that isn't male nudity. Cause the male nudity, he's just like, it's all out there. Yeah. And I appreciate mm-hmm. that about him. Because there are so some many, dicks in this book. Oh, there's yeah. a lot of, I mean, there's <laughs> equal every opportunity. Kind of, That's the yeah. way I like it in my books. But so much about <laughs> the women in this are 
suggestions. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Like you never actually see Nancy naked. You what you see is her backlit by the lights where you only get her silhouette. You never see like But it's s- a filled out silhouette. Oh, it, no, it's absolutely. And it makes her conceptual. Yeah, which yeah. and that's that's yeah. kind of what it's he's not giving you the Nancy's nudity, which would not be nearly as satisfying. He's letting you know what everybody else sees. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is this figure that is beyond imagining. It's the same thing where you when you don't see Kevin being dismantled to being dismembered because Miller knows that he can't show you anything that's worse than what you can imagine. Yes. Because he knows you're going to imagine that wolf getting in there and doing what wolves do when they're trying to. They're... I just want to say the design of Kevin is also pretty amazing. Oh, because I love it. If there was a psychotic cannibal serial killer yeah. and Frank Miller's drawing them, what do you imagine? You imagine someone who looks like Marv. The yeah. casting you, is wonderful too. Oh yeah, the fact that they, Elijah Wood. Elijah Wood. I've never oh, seen I've, him the same ever since that <laughs> movie came out. And I'm he serious. That, he did that just two years after Lord of the Rings. I know. So, I, which was a brilliant move because you you need to do that immediately when you do something <laughs> as big as Lord of the Rings so, because otherwise you get typecast. Yeah. So Kevin is probably one of the two most physically da- him and Miho. Miho also is like a, a psycho ninja. Deadly little Miho. Thank <laughs> you very much. So <laughs> I can't okay. But both of the most deadly people are the tiniest people. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Kevin looks like he's the guy who comes and fixes your internet. Uh, he's just this very non-assuming, quiet guy uh, with glasses on, but he has sharpened fingernails and he's jumping around like a ninja slashing your face up. And the fact that Marv has to defeat him by handcuffing himself to this guy. And oh, this pathetic okay. figure uh, otherwise would be seen as somewhat pathetic is empowered by this vast system. You know, as as it is too, it's like empowered by the church and all this other stuff. And it's interesting because this they keep talking about like, yeah, when he ate these people, he was filled with white light. And this, ugh, the white specifically. (laughs) It's interesting, again, to look at parallels with things in in real life. And like on the alt-right, you see so many of these pathetic, weak, weedy little men that are given so much. Yeah, they are given so much opportunity to cause harm by this larger system. And that terrifies me again more than a big brutish dude. It's these people that are concealed. It's people who, the alt-right is made up of people who've been made to feel weak their whole life. So they've decided they need to find somebody smaller than them Mm -hmm. and, and feel powerful by making them feel terrified and upset and scared. Yeah. And you see the moment that they are not Marv mm-hmm. in the moments when they get caught on camera and their employers and their friends and their family members see them for what they are. Those are the guys that are crying on camera. They're not the, well, I'm just worth going to hell for. Those are not those guys who I'm going to no. face the consequences. No. Yeah. It's like I'm doing it for you, Nancy. No, it's like, oh, my God, oh, my God. <laughs> no. I, got, I got fired from like Home <laughs> Instantly Depot. Instantly crying, just the it's, waterworks on. But yeah, that's, that's what a bully is. Yeah. And and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of bullies in Sin City. They're usually the fucking cops. Yeah. The cops are basically just the goon squad for the establishment. And they entirely wear riot gear at all times they show up guns guns blazing the only other time you see them talking to someone is when they're trying to beat a confession out of somebody who's being falsely accused on behalf of a rich person and as as just a quick parallel on a personal level of course we just passed the 5th of november so i do my yearly watching of v for vendetta and my yearly reread and i was just thinking about um how once they get to the final confrontation with v and everything else and um the oh my gosh i'm thinking the actor's name instead um 
they they get to the essentially the chancellor uh, settler there we are um that there's that weeping pathetic moment when you're actually faced with consequences any consequences and they're just oh, just weeping oh, I don't want to die kind of thing and that these particular gritty stories really seem to fetishize that particular element of these people that act like they have power that act like they are strong because of the systems that support them and how the average vigilante character person with just enough determination just enough interest in like learning and, and moving toward how that system works in order how to attack it or to figure out how to attack it rather and then when faced with that power is really not power at all it's yeah. really just weak pathetic people I, yeah. and Isn't that was happening the around the same time like the senator says his power entirely comes from the fact that he can tell a lie yes. and that everyone will believe that lie. They 500 won't... people in this hospital, and if I can convince them all that, you They'll know, all, they'll all yeah. say a thing that they know isn't true. Yep. I can shoot you in this hospital bed, and nobody will arrest me. Nobody mm-hmm. will say a goddamn thing. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing with somebody like Marv, is he's the guy who doesn't give a shit about yeah, all that. Yeah, that's... That there's that fear of, if I do stand up and say something, they'll hurt me, and Marv's like, fuck it. And what do you do with a guy who just says, fuck it? And when he's seven feet tall and 300 pounds and <laughs> feels no pain. And, yeah, well, in, I, in that particular context, though, it was Hardigan that was in the hospital. Well, and, yeah. So, oh, well, that's, that's correct. You're right. Sorry, yeah, just, I just always point, get those you, scenes you are confused. Correct. I do, too, because there's a lot of similarity in those characters, and they're fighting essentially the well, same sort of concepts. Yeah, and it's Senator Rourke in both, because I kept expecting the scene where he comes in and does the talk with Marv, and I'm like, oh, no, it doesn't happen with Marv. It happens with Hardigan. Yeah, yeah. I think the really interesting thing about about Sin City is that in all in both of those stories, both with Hardigan and Marv, Senator Rourke or Cardinal Rourke, they're talking about how you'll never get away with it. And it's like, well, at that point, it doesn't matter. I've won. You have gained nothing for Yeah, I signed this confession. I'm going to die. But it doesn't matter because you still don't have the fucking, you can't undo what I've done. Well, yeah, because he's fighting him. Like, he's going in to demoralize Hardigan because he already knows that he's being fought ideologically. Right. It's, Mm. again, he could shoot him in his bed. He could do any of these other sort of things. But, again, he's doing that villain speech because the importance is on the fact that the thing that gives Hardigan power is his sense of values, his sense of trying to do something like Don Quixote style. It's right. like you know, yeah. tilting against this thing. It's like, I'm going to say that that's meaningless. I'm going to convince you it's meaningless. Hardigan knows it isn't. Right. Like Hardigan is not going to go out and talk because he wants to protect Nancy. But nope. the fact that he's withholding the confession is the one thing that he can say no to and deny yeah. this guy. Yeah. And that's the one. It's like more about that than it is because the guy's already in jail for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter in any functional way. I mean, that's why he shows up to the hearing where he says, I need to get out of prison. I need to protect Nancy. And the senator is there yeah. because the senator goes like, I'm going to hear you say it. And it's like, that's what gets in Hardigan's gut. That's the thing that just burns him is like that fucking guy has to be here. And it's like, that's what this is all about about and you know what fuck you i'll say the thing you want to say but you're not going to hurt her i will do anything to myself and again it comes to that that trade at the end where he does shoot himself because he knows as long as i'm alive you will hurt her to get me yeah so he you know the trade an old man dies a young woman lives fair trade and that's where i cry the Mm. interesting (laughs) thing to me is that the the overwhelming conflict in sit and city is power versus people Right. It's it's all these stories about 
a person standing up for another person against overwhelming power. And so when the senator is telling Hardigan, I'm going to put you up, I'm going to turn you over, he can't understand why Hardigan is acting the way he does because it is so uh, anathemic to his worldview because Hardigan is placing the value of one person above himself. As long as Nancy is safe, I don't care. And I think that that is what's really interesting to me about about those first four stories. And, I mean, uh, family values also, I think it kind of gets weirdly faded after that. But, yeah. like, it's all about power versus people. And, and what's, what's interesting to me is I think, Dwight says it all in the big fat kill, right? It's like sometimes standing up for your friends means dying. And sometimes it means killing a whole bunch of people. (laughs) And that is, that is it, right? It's like, what do you want? Do you want untold riches power beyond your wildest dreams? Or do you want to know that you did the right thing by you and yours? And that's kind of, that's, that's, that's what it's about. That's why I think it's so successful is because at the end of the day, Marv did right by himself, and he did right by Goldie, and that's all he wanted. And so it doesn't matter that he dies in the electric chair because he he was successful. Even then, that's all you got. Yeah, which is great. I've <laughs> got that cute. little. I've it. got the statue of him in the Fit in the fucking electric chair. Yeah, it's it's just. I think, and it's the same with Hardigan. And it's funny because reading it this time was that was the first time I really connected with that, hmm. um, and. I realized, oh, that's like the ultimate nobility in this world, right? Is you believe in something. Because if you do something and you know you're going to get away with it, then that's not that's not really a noble act, is it? I mean, like that's, a, you know. It's it's GTA where you're, yeah. you're playing yeah. a game yeah. and you, you can't be hurt in real life by the things you do in this game. Yeah. There's no ultimate consequence. You, your character can die, but I can switch off the console. But Marv makes a decision the minute he hears the name Rourke, mm-hmm. that he's going to die at the end of this story. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And he lets it happen. The same thing happens with, with Hardigan, is that Hardigan puts Nancy in the car, tells her to drive the hell out of this town, and he lies to her. He lies to her and says, you know, I'm going to stick around. I'm going to bust this case down. wide open. And he gives her this, this vision of an ending that never happens in this world. He lies to her and tells her that the world is just and yeah. that there are going to be mm-hmm. consequences and that this senator is going to prison and I'm going to clear my name and all this good stuff. And he knows that isn't true, but he needs to say it. And like everything else, it's like his confession again. Right. I need to say it to protect you. I need you to get the fuck out of this town. And that's what I need to say to do it. He kisses her because it's what he needs to do. He's saying goodbye, and he says, I need you to go. I need you to believe that the world is going to be better than this. But really, the escape of her from that town is his happy ending. And he knows as long as he's alive, she's in danger. Yeah. And because that's the ultimate. The decision is that this town will fucking kill you. It'll kill you or it'll corrupt you. And if you're the person who's unwilling to bend, at least you can die on your own fucking terms. Right. Right. And really, the rule is just like... I like that there are rules there. I like that Hardigan knows, well, if I die here, there's no reason for anybody to go after Nancy. And that is a rule, right? It's like Dwight killing everybody in the big fat kill. I'm going to make this so big, so bloody, and so messy because I know I can't win. 
but I can make this very unpalatable, right? I can be the the beetle that basically blasts poison into your mouth when you try to eat me. I can be that thing. And that will buy me what I need because I can't win in a head on it, right? Like I can win in this narrow situation. And even though it will not change the status quo, there will always be another scumbag. I can win here. And that's, that's like the ultimate noir thing, right? Yeah. Like I can win this fight. There are hundreds of others that I won't, but I can win this one and I can win it by living up to my code, by following my, my morals and by just being who I am. I think that's the thing that's always attracted me to the hard boiled genre, to the noir genre, where it is people just being them. Right. That's like, I love Spencer because Spencer for hire, the, the, by, um, what's his face? Robert B. Parker. Uh, Spencer knows he's not the smartest dude he knows, but he knows that he can throw a punch and he knows he's not going to stop. And that's what gets him to the end. And I think um, this is just the really, this is distilled. This is that thrown into a big stock pot with a bunch of carrots and celery and <laughs> onions and cooked down for six hours until all you have left is that pure essence. And then served over a nice whatever. <laughs> so I, I want to get into the last big questions of this conversation. Um, and that is the question of legacy. That Sin City is one of these books that is kind of, it was considered an evergreen book for a very long time. That if you had a graphic novel section, it was going to be represented there. I don't see Sin City as much in graphic novel sections as much. I don't see Sin City brought up as much in conversations about classic comics. The way that, you know, say like Sandman is always there no matter what. So I guess the question is, is... Is Sin City a book that we are going to be revisiting and recommending to our friends and talking about um, 20 years from now? Or is this a bit like the movie Avatar, which still remains the top grossing movie of all time, but seems to have no pop culture footprint? And what is ultimately the legacy of Sin City? <laughs> I fucking will. I mean, I know I, as an individual person, am going to continue to recommend it to people, um, especially just uh, like i don't know genre readers as it is um thinking of it from the library perspective i found it interesting to note out loud to everybody that in pursuing these books for a reread again i had assumed automatically i was like of course i'm going to get them from work from the library i'm just going to get them from the collection i searched the catalog nothing i mean we had both the movies which was mm. interesting but we didn't have any of the graphic novels in our collection anymore. And we had a we have a very robust graphic novel collection throughout the library system. And I found that so notable and so interesting. And I was almost thankful to hear from Joe on the ride up here that it was like, hey, there's uh, I think Frank said that there was some sort of re-release or something. Uh, that was yeah, they're, out. they're getting ready to re-re-re-release that. Yeah. Mm. And, and I was hoping when I saw that in the catalog, I was like, oh, my God, I hope this isn't one of those cases to where it's like, well, we've just decided that we don't want to deal with this because a lot of libraries are going through these um, audits about, you know, materials that might have like contentious stuff in it, which to me as a librarian is immoral 
um, because <laughs> censorship. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And also because you need to know about all kinds of complicated and difficult things and not just the stuff that fits a common cultural narrative right now. But I think it's important as a sense of history that if we're yes. going to confront, you know, whether it's racism, sexism, homophobia, whatever. Yeah. Um, to only have access to media that doesn't portray things. And again, portrayal is not the same thing as endorsement. Um, but I think it's important to not let history off the hook yeah. and just having something there. So you go, Oh, okay. This thing can be good. I mean, you can call this the Lovecraft conundrum yeah. where you have something that is technically great and awesome in so many ways, but you know, any kind of read of it, you're going to have to have complicated <laughs> feelings about it. Well, very recently, um, on this very similar vein, uh, I found a, a DVD at work from 1927 that was um, The Adventures of Prince Ahmed, which was a, a paper silhouette animated thing, one of the first hmm. um, animated movies. And it is super problematic because it's all about him going to these different countries and there's these stereotypes in it. It's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. One of the most beautiful films I've ever seen in my life. And it has this complication in it. It has this like little moral conundrum of like whether or not it's acceptable to see things in this way. But it has undoubted beauty and undoubted historical value in terms of the history of animation. I found myself worried, you know, to return it. I was very worried that when we go through some of these audits um, that people won't have the opportunity to see it. And so at least for my answer... Um, should I survive the next 20 years, I'm absolutely going to be handing this book to my now seven-year-old nephew because I think it's valuable. I think it's valuable to see things that are messy and see beauty in them. So, I mean, and I'll continue to recommend it to, to my teens and everybody else if they continue with graphic novels. If I end up with this book club on graphic novels, I'm choosing it because I believe that a core competency in a type of media is important like this was core to me becoming a comic book fan this was one of the first series i ever bought and i deeply regret that at one point i got rid of it under the feeling that i should not like it that morally i should not like it or because of frank miller as a person i shouldn't like it i have rebought the series three times and that tells me something you know, in this case, it was just under duress to make sure I got to reread in time. <laughs> um, but then as I was doing that reread, I was like, I can't let you go again. I just, it still held something powerful for me. So my answer, yes, absolutely. Hmm. I mean, uh, we are in a, I'm, I'm always coming with this from a different perspective than the lifers in the room. Um, but certainly now with the legacy of what comic books are, which is, the comic books are huge now because they're IP to be like flipped and turned into huge shared universes and marketing and all of this stuff. And that has already happened for Sin City, right? I mean, they got, they wrangled two movies out of them. One, one I think was really good. The other one was, uh, um, not good. I, it wasn't, yeah, it was well, fine. It was fine. I think it's a good example of the, the game of Thrones problem is that you run out of source material. And again, we talked about that, that decline, uh, all the good stuff is in the first movie. Right. It, so it, it's a, there's a potential for maybe someone to try to do an animated series or something, which would be I, – I, I couldn't tell. The thing about it is is it will 
much like the much like Watchmen, I would say, it'll be the thing where it's this this thing that's sort of encased in amber. And I feel like because Frank Miller stopped and was it 2000 was the last time I did it. It's kind of encased in amber in ways that is that is great because it they're you know they're not going to do a they're not going to hire other authors to do a before sin city series to try to milk more out of that you know they're yeah, not they're not going to end up doing that young marv adventures <laughs> yes oh my God. and so in that way it's sort of like it will it will have its place and not because the creator died but because it is the artifact of this time of an you know a dark horse an independent comic book in an era when you know they were you know comic books could still sell millions of issues uh, per month, you know, of a given comic book, it's encased in amber. Um, and there's something that's also timeless about the idea that it is in a setting that is supposed to be, it is anachronistic. It's modern and aren't there like lasers at some point? Anyways, you have computers or something, and then they can be next to a car that looks like it was minted in 1950, you know. Um, in that way, it will be the thing that that will exist on its own and will be there. Frank Miller, I think, his legacy will come through Batman and Dark Knight Returns because it seems like, as you said, we are on an arms race to find the grittiest possible version of Batman and it's due in large part to Frank Miller. So I think that will be his legacy and that will always overshadow Sin City. But from a pure perspective of reading the books themselves, not the adaptations, the books themselves, Sin City is going to be the one that people are going to look to. I I agree. I would recommend this book to people before I recommended The Dark Knight Returns. Hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. Me too. Uh, but after year one, strangely enough, um, because I think year one, um, you know, it, it, of course, depends on the circumstance. But I I tend to prefer Miller's stuff with Mazzuchelli because I think Mazzuchelli was a, a mellowing influence on him. Hmm. But I think the first two, I think the first four books are excellent. I think the first two books are masterpieces. Mm. Yeah. I still have, um, I think the version of Sin City and A Dame to Kill For. So this was, it's, it is from before they started referring to it as the hard goodbye. Mm. So those are the two, probably the two oldest trades I own because I've bought them once and managed to keep them with me. I've lost so many other stuff. So that should, t- I mean, I think they are. Damn near perfect, warts and all. Um, and yeah, I absolutely. Uh, and I think recommending comics to anybody, you can't recommend willy-nilly. Right. There's a lot of people I would not <laughs> right. recommend Sin City to because it wouldn't be their thing. But for somebody that was like, hey, this Frank Miller guy, I, w- I want to I hear about him. What should I read? Mm-hmm. I would absolutely say read Sin City. Read hmm. read Sin read Sin City the Hard Goodbye. Read A Dame to Kill For. Read The Big Fat Kill and read That Yellow Bastard. Yep, yep. Because those will set the bar. And then if you like that, go back and read his other stuff. Because I think his Daredevil run is incredible. Oh, I yeah. love Daredevil. I think I think Year One is incredible. I think the Dark Knight Returns is always better than I remember it. And even the Dark Knight Strikes Again has some cool shit in it, even though overall it's not great. I mean, I love that it's Wally West powering the entire West Coast power <laughs> grid and shit. Like, I love that, right? Because at least he had the fucking decency to use Wally West and not Barry Allen. Fucking Jeff Johns. Um, we probably will talk about that a little bit later because I finally saw the Flashpoint trailer and my response was a was a hearty 
fuck you, DC. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, the, I think Sin City is, it, I agree. It is encased yeah. in amber. It is, and I think that maybe softens some of my response to the more problematic elements of it is mm-hmm. half of them come from the, the genre. And, and so I'm a nerd to it. I think Kit and I talk about James Bond and, yes. and that aspect of James Bond all the time. It's like, we don't, if I recommend James Bond to you and you don't like James Bond, that's fine. We don't need to have a 20 minute conversation. Right, we, right. I know that James Bond is problematic. Yeah, I don't I know need to that argue he's a, with you about I, this. Yeah, yeah, I know that he's a rapist. I know that he did some <laughs> awful goddamn shit. That's, that is what it is. We can acknowledge that. We can talk about that problematic nature in films. We can talk about the fact that he's a monster. Totally get it, 100%. But it does not change the fact that, to me, those movies are enjoyable. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with Sin City. I, I love these books. They speak to a part of me where I was just getting into what comics could be. They're up there to me with the Sandman, as far as... And whereas I think... People like Brubaker and Phillips have taken what he yep. did and taken it to the next level. Yeah. Um, I don't necessarily think anybody has done that with the Sandman yet quite as well as Brubaker. I mean, Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips are mwah, spaghetti kisses, fucking incredible. Right. And what they've done to the that kind of noir, like noir graphic novel genre is beautiful. And they absolutely could not have done it without Sin City. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that's a great place to end the conversation, and we will be right back in just a moment with High Point, Low Point. Siskoid's blog of geekery is... Doctor Who, Babylon 5, Animation, Comics, Toys, Godzilla, Star Trek, Cats, Crypto, Role Playing Games, Battle Shovel, X Files, Music, Podcast, Board Games, Jack Kirby, Alien, Movie, Kung Fu, Dinosaur, and so much more. Siskoid's Blog of Geekery, 10 years of content, more than 7,500 posts, still going strong at siskoid.blogspot.com. And we are back with Radio vs. the Martians this month talking about Sin City. Now it's time for High Point, Low Point. Of course, we go to the top of the mountain, the bottom of the barrel. We're starting out low. What is the low point of Sin City? I'm going to start with you, Joe. Uh, It's a real toss-up for me between roughly half the stories in Booze Broads and and Bullets Mm -hmm. and, and Helen Beck. I like Helen Beck. But it it really it is it is an odd duck of a story. It it does not fit in with Sin City. It feels very disconnected from the mythos. It feels like it was an idea he had for a Batman story, and <laughs> then was like, oh, they won't let me do this, so I'm just gonna tell it here. Um, there's a bunch of not great shit in in the in the collection, which is the like one shots and stuff, the booze broads and bullets collection. Mm-hmm. The whole introduction of this, like, um, I don't know, the Sin City equivalent of the Red Room lady assassins yeah. running around. It just feels very weird. And I, it just doesn't, I think the first four books, I'll throw Family Matter. I'll throw uh, Family Values in there, too, even though I don't think that's the same quality. 
they feel part of the same universe. You can imagine Marv running around doing shit while Dwight is doing his thing. You you can kind of you can kind of imagine that. Uh, but in Helen in Helen back, you're just like, where where is this fucking happening? <laughs> yeah. Where where is anybody that I recognize in this? And yeah, it's just not. I like it, but it's it's not as good. It's just not as good. Hmm. I, I feel boring to just agree <laughs> that um, Helen back. I felt nothing from just nothing. It just it felt like I was just forcing myself to read it because at least especially at the initial read, because it was like, well, you know, I have to read everything to complete something rather was my mindset with comics then now i am more than okay with being like i don't really care how it ends if you lose me you lose me there's other stuff um but i i remember specifically sitting there in my room waiting for like two in the morning to be sure that my parents were asleep because i still lived at home and all that and and anticipating reading books and things like this i read most of sin city at work during my breaks but there were a lot of times that we were allowed to sign out books and then bring them back into work. And I remember one of those feelings of like, okay, did all my college stuff, going to go home. I just had to wait for my parents to knock out so I can read this. And I remember just this vast emptiness. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know that I can waste more words on it. Okay. <laughs> I think that there's a reason we talked about it the least. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it just, yeah. nothing. It, it, I think you guys were right in that it doesn't really feel like Sin City in that way. It starts getting drawn like Dark Knight Strikes again. There's a big segment in color, and that just feels wrong. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, Casey, what is the low point so, of Sin City? This is, this is like the beginning of a penthouse forum letter. I never thought this could happen before. No, I read this. I read the series after probably well, it was six years ago would have been the last time I had been through it. Um, and this was Family Values uh, that I was going through, of which I don't own it, so I was reading it from the library's website, and I started to get a little nauseous. Now I'm not a shrinking violet. I'm not like I spent all of October watching horror movies and whatever. Like I, I, I'm not, I'm not someone who's going to be like, Oh my God, I can't watch whatever. Um, in family values, the main character is Dwight and he's along. It's like the further adventures of Dwight and Miho. And there's this whole slog <laughs> through this weird revenge narrative that it's all about. There's some kind of dour and violent and mean spirited thing. Of course he's, he's doing right by somebody in the end, right? Of course he is. And, and the, the, but in the end, like, I just felt like the weeks leading up to this panel of trying to sit down and read a Sin City book and sort of getting to a point where I was like, this is good. I'm going to put it down so I can write a little more and then having to droop, like pull myself back into it. And then I was, I was going through Family Values and I was just like, this does this makes me feel in a way that I don't enjoy anymore. Mm -hmm. I know that Family Values is towards the front of the catalog as opposed to sort of the back. So it probably has a lot more that's more recognizably Sin City. But I was just thinking of maybe Miller is kind of like a Tarantino movie. You know, we talked about this in our panel is you can go so many years in between a Tarantino movie that when a new one comes out, you're reminded of it being like, oh, right. This is why what he does is great. This is why your mileage may vary, Joe. Joe might be giving me the anti-Tarantino vibes. But my you. fatigue for the whole thing crescendoed to this point where I was wondering, am I going to read these books again? Like, if I'm getting this feeling, if I'm left with the feeling of of this, do I want to have them lying around in my long boxes 
because my eight-year-old might discover them and might get the wrong idea about because you need a little bit of a critical distance from this the subject matter because of how shocking it is um and after years of holding sin city in my esteem i'm wondering if it's collapsed and i don't know if you, you guys have done a heroic job of really selling like that for the first quadrilogy piece of it um but i don't know i don't think i'm a fan of these books anymore um, and it's family values was what cr- made that happen for me. And I can't pinpoint one specific thing, but I just kind of feel like you can feel icky. It can make you feel gross, not in a way where you get a good payoff, but just in a way of being like, ah, I don't like this family. I think that's the, I think that's the thing. So many of the other narratives are so immediate in the way that they're driven by the characters and family values. He's trying to do something different, which I appreciate, but his, the success is not, it's not the same because he removes the thing that is so successful about the first three, which is that there is a time element. There is this driving force Mm -hmm. pushing everything forward. But when you come into family values, everything's already happened and he's trying to do this more like detective thing. And that's why I think it's not as successful. He's not good at that. Mm. He's good at the driving narrative. He's good at the, you've got to go. You've got to take the next step. You've got to kill the next person. You've got to yeah. find the next step in the chain. And uh, family values is just like, well, everything's already happened. And now you're here trying to figure it out. And then is just like, oh, I don't like any of these characters for the most part <laughs> to get to know them on this level. Yeah. Like, Dwight, yeah, great. Miho, great, right? Like, I can't hear Deadly Little Heo, Miho without hearing Clive Owen say yeah, it. Like, yeah. <laughs> Deadly Little Miho. But, um, it's a soft spot for Dwight entirely because yeah. of Clive Owen. Well, and that's totally, it's totally fair. But I think that, like, that because that element is removed, that's why family values kind of falls down for mm. me. Okay. Milo point. Oh, it's it's Frank Miller himself. <laughs> um, Frank Miller can be really hard to defend, and I largely don't try to because it just people come into it and they go, "Oh God, Frank Miller," and I'm like, "Okay, I just know right off the bat I can't recommend you any of his stuff, even if I think it's great." And I feel that way with a lot of new readers. I mean, that's the thing is that people our age and up, if I get the vibe that they might like it or they might at least like the art, I can I can give them that. But it's not just that Frank Miller is kind of an awful person. Um, I mean, remember that, you know, Jesus Christ, his spats with Alan Moore from the last couple of years yeah. over Occupy Wall Street was really yeah. ugly, where he referred to Occupy Wall Street activists as pawn scum and thieves and rapists, and he's just mm. genuinely shitty about it. I mean, he's softened on it, but then you look at the stuff he did post 9-11 again, 300 is just icky. There's nothing good I can feel about that. Unreadable. And, you know, I don't care about its visual style, even though I love the visual style of, say, Sin City. I look at that and I just go, oh, God, you know. I think the highest compliment you can pay to 300 is Lynn Varley's colors. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. I'd agree with that. Yeah, and not, then, not much else. Not much yeah. else. And I just I look at that and I look at Holy Terror and he just I look at Dark Knight Strikes Again and it's like everything this guy puts out in the modern era. And just immediately you get that M Night Shyamalan feeling of a guy who used to make things you like and you just go, 
oh god his name i don't want to see this mm. i don't want to watch this i don't want to read this i don't want to hear this and like there's nothing that you know nothing about frank miller now that makes me want to read his new stuff because all i see now is again that you know latter day mel gibson problem was i just see this bitter old reactionary who just seems increasingly out of touch that everything out of his mouth is like one of those old comedians complaining about how kids these days are all pieces of shit. And, <laughs> and it, it tars all of his older stuff. I mean, because Dark Knight Returns is great. And you look at things like his Daredevil run and it's great. And you, especially Dark Knight Returns, there's an angle of kind of satire and there's a, there's a, there's a tongue in that cheek. Yeah. <laughs> like when you have Ronald Reagan on like a red, white, and blue bathrobe riding around on a presidential Segway. And, you know, the mayor of Gotham City is just such a feckless liberal that even after he's bumped up to be the mayor from deputy mayor because the gang leader ate the last mayor <laughs> in negotiations, he's like, well, you know, I have I haven't turned negotiations off with this cannibalistic <laughs> gang leader. I'm, I'm still willing to talk. It just feels like such a cartoon and so self-aware that when you look at his other stuff, there's no fucking self-awareness in latter-day Frank Miller. I, that a lot of his latter stuff just feels like a chick tract, except instead of Jesus, you're talking about Batman. <laughs> I think All-Star Batman and Robin is the greatest satirical comic work of all time. <laughs> that I'm just is... going to put that out there. I honestly think that he knows what he's doing in that. And I did not believe it until I read it from beginning to end. And I was like, there is no way he could be I, taking any of this I seriously. still don't know. I still don't know if it's I... just, if it's an illustrated emotional breakdown or if it really is <laughs> self-satire. It is ultimately, is that dress blue or is it gold that's really what that <laughs> no, and I, I agree with you but i there is a moment where he's sitting in the fucking yellow room talking to hal jordan and he's drinking lemonade and it's the fact that he's drinking lemonade that i'm like oh you know what you're doing don't you <laughs> you're doing this is just you making fun of yourself <laughs> I, well, I, I wish i could believe that i want to believe it so bad maybe it's a story i'm telling myself i find it kind of tragic i think when a creator misses out on what their actual appeal is like misattributes their own appeal and just veers off the wrong fork in the road and i think that's sort of what happened with miller is that and that's really common with people that make things that are bombastic or outrageous is that they think the outrageousness or they think the uh i'm pushing boundaries by just doing this thing i'm not supposed to do is their appeal mm -hmm. I think that's really sad because he he missed out on all this other great stuff that he's doing in Sin City. Again, like these these interesting moral conflicts and stuff by using this outrageous situation um, or or just being great at making character driven narratives. That is my number one appeal yeah. for Frank Miller, because, again, you get me to follow somebody who has killed people, follow somebody who, you know, maybe does these like aberrant sort of things. And not just follow them, but love them. Yeah, and that's a that's the thing yeah. that just drives me crazy is that there is some there is some gold in there, and it feels like Frank Miller himself is making it hard for especially younger generations to even want to pick it up. And I can't really blame yeah. them for the sort of toxic cloud that follows him around, and it's all his own fault. So I mean, honestly. Frank Miller is his own low point. <laughs> <laughs> that that is very succinct. I think that's that's a very fair point. So let's let's pull ourselves out of the muck. Let's let's go to the high point, top of the mountain. What is the high point of Frank Miller, Kit? Um, I had already decided in terms of moments, I guess. 
Um, for me, again, if you can successfully make me cry like a baby in scenarios like what you're seeing in Sin City, um, that's something valuable to me. Um, my high point of everything he's ever done is just like Hardigan and Nancy. Hmm. Like how you do a story, like a, a version of a story I've heard a thousand times before. A thousand times. But I don't even really quite know how to articulate it other than there. there's something really meaningful about caring so much about this situation when you know there's just such rampant, horrible things happening literally everywhere at the same time. But that you can take this individual story even when you like accost me with all this other awful stuff happening in the same setting and effectively make me feel a sense of not just reality in those characters and their motivations, but like a degree of like emotional intimacy and kindness and individuality in something again, that's it's a very basic damsel story. And also cry like a child. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, it's I, I never fail to to read again those words, you know, an old man dies, girl lives, fair trade, and just sob. And then you had to throw you really had to throw Bruce Willis at me doing that. And I'm so I'm constantly emotional about Bruce Willis. Because he reminds me of my dad. <laughs> I'm not even gonna lie. So I I'm wish Bruce like, Willis oh. could be more emotional about Bruce yeah. Willis these days. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. If, <laughs> if, it's if, what a fitting person to put in there when sure. we're talking about Frank Miller. Because yeah, I don't oh. give a damn if you make oh, I, me see Bruce Willis I, and I'm just like, oh, he's doing the right thing. He's Bruce Willis. <laughs> that's yeah. Bruce Willis when done right, no can defend. Oh, yeah, no, he's incredible. Armageddon is a cheese pile. It's garbage in many ways. I love it so much. And I also cry during Armageddon. There you go. <laughs> okay, Joe. Um, high point. So my high point is something I never realized before this read. And I really, when I sat down to read these books, I was like, all right, we're going to, it's been years. I, I think, again, the last time I read them was also six years ago. But I was like, I want to read them with purpose this time. And I found myself realizing this inc this really brilliant thing that Miller does throughout the first quadrilogy which is how he builds characters because of the weird way the timeline is chopped up. He builds these characters and works that come after other works that flesh them out in retrospect. So the thing that I was, uh, there's, there's Marv and Dwight, which is most apparent, but there's also Mort and Bob who are the mm -hmm. cops that investigate yes. Ava Lord. Yep. More is in, they're both in, because when that happens, you're like, oh, fucking more, dude. Bob's just trying to do the right thing. Right. And more, it's fucking it all up. And then you read that yellow bastard and you found it. No, more was the good cop. Like more was trying to do the right thing. Bob's the piece of shit. And it totally, you read it and all of a sudden you're like, oh, I don't feel bad that Mort fucking blew Bob away in his fucking car because Bob's a giant piece of garbage. Also, how the hell does he effectively dodge this becoming copaganda? That was the thing I was huh. thinking about last night that I was like, that I have to look at narratives about police differently yeah, now all, yeah. in light of what has happened like over the last several years. And of course, obviously beyond that, but more cultural awareness of 
what American and modern day policing looks like. I don't know how he did it. Well, other than like, just he acknowledges that the cops are, are garbage. Garbage. Yes. And they are no, that they are there for the benefit of the wealthy. Yes. And yes, he gave me that one good cop. And especially in copaganda stories, like if you do admit that the police are corrupt, that one good apple apparently is supposed to cancel out all the bad apples somehow. Like, and then you just fantasize about this idea that there are all these noble, noble people doing this job. But there's, and, there's two good apple cops, and what happens to one of them becomes a bad cop. Yes. And the other one ends up having to kill himself. And that's probably how it's done. That's yeah. probably how it's done to mm. not turn it into copaganda is because if you are in a job like this, if you're in a position like this, if you know the things that you know and you still go to work every single goddamn day to help, per, like, perpetuate that... Either you're going to have massive cognitive dissonance and you're just going to go with everything else and give up, which is just like crabs pulling each other down into the bucket, or your small acts of nobility are going to be, again, the Morsi animals, throwing starfish back into the ocean. Mm -hmm. This awareness that it's like, yes, there may be this one good cop. Yes, it hasn't stopped this evil like you said with the hardigan bit of just like i'm going to take it down i'm going to clear my name i'm going to change the system the knowledge that he can't yeah mm. the knowledge that he can't it's uh, just broken that, somehow yeah. there's less fantasy in he's Sin the City aberration not yeah, yeah somehow there's yeah. less fantasy in that yeah. than there is in again tons of action movies with these like oh yeah i'm the hero cop kind of thing yeah that's yeah. interesting who's the other hero cop Jackie boy. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And that, oh and my that, God. That, yeah, they, they just call him a hero cop. They specifically use that phrase hero cop. Yeah. Because they, he's aware of what the connotation of that is. Yeah, Cause most cops beat it's, their wives. Well, yes. Yeah, that's true. I also want to just real briefly. The other ones aren't married. I think a lot of people misunderstand this idea of the bad apple and they're like, well, one bad apple doesn't spoil the bunch. And I'm like, well, that phrase actually comes from, when people would pick apples, they would put them in barrels and mm-hmm. they would sink them in the river to keep them. Because if you can cool down, cold apples effectively stop releasing ethylene, which is the mm-hmm. chemical that causes ripening in fruits. So, but when an, as an apple rots, as most and bananas do this too, but as an apple rots, it quadruples its production of ethylene. Mm-hmm. So one bad apple will literally spoil an entire yes. barrel of apples. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so the point of that is to say, yes, one shitty cop can make an entire department bad. In Sin City, the beautiful thing about the attitude towards cops is yes, there is no illusion that they're the good guys, that they're going to fucking fix everything. Even Hardigan says, I have to st- in the beginning of that yellow bastard, I have to stay alive until I hear the sirens, yeah. not because they will save the day, but because Bob can't blow away this little girl. If other cops are standing around. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, that tells you everything you need to know about cops in Sin City. And, 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 and they are one of the biggest threats to the girls of old town. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. It's worse than the mafia. It's just like, and they talked about that shaky truth sort of thing. of just like, oh, yeah, we're going to use these women whenever we like, essentially, yes. yeah. for this. And there's always this awareness that it has always been tilted in their favor, which is why the only response you can have in a truce like that is to heavily arm yourselves yeah. to train <laughs> the women to do that sort of thing and to make sure that this is like... This is a common understanding is that this truth will not last long. Mm -hmm. You don't just assume that people are going to be noble 
Especially not cops. Yeah. Well, not. And, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they exactly. just need an but, excuse to do due process. Okay. So, so I think that the, the, for me, it's the fact that this time I realized just how heavily he is weaving together these narratives and letting mm-hmm. you know that it's taking, oh, taking place all over this span of time where uh, even family values, Dwight recognizes or mentions that Marv is on death row. Right. Right. Like we have the hard goodbye where we get the end of Marv's story, but we get more of Marv's story in the other stories because he's just chilling. He helps Dwight with Minute. He, you know, and then I really like that. that. That is world building, the likes of which so many people cannot do they try and they fucking fail and it it just kind of i think it just kind of really puts in stark contrast the thing mike was saying about his low point is that miller can write yeah he can write his ass off but i think as he goes back to the well there are two wells there's the well where he wrote sin city (laughs) and then there's the well which is like well we could tell another story about old libertarian batman (laughs) and i think that's the story i'm gonna tell again i want to i just want to tell that story and it's like well but you've You've told that story, Frank. You don't have any more stories for us, man? But are you sure that Batman already, as a character, isn't just innately libertarian? He's a, yeah. he's a fucking saying. billionaire. I, just no, saying. We're not going to have this discussion because Anyways, I hate no, the sorry. modern... I hate what modern culture has done to Batman. Okay. Can't open worms everywhere. Yeah. Casey, high point. Uh, we talked about it before. Of course, it was inevitable that we talk about it. The art style. The black and white chiroscuro. The contrast between the two. The negative space. <sighs> It has that crazy muting effect on the impact of violence and blood, which is actually really, I I learned about this because of Kill Bill, because they chose to do the big scene with them fight in the the bar or whatever, and they turn it to black and white. And the uh, the effect is, is that it is not so shocking to be able to see really terrible violence because of it. Um, And I think I said before, Frank Miller is not the first guy to do this, but he's sort of weaponized this crazy idea it's also notable because if you read ronin or dark knight returns you can see that miller's normal visual style is like lots of cross hatching and there's other minute detail in the characters that are almost totally missing until you get to the end of sin city and the clever motif of it being black and white and the gray of the world of sin city um and then when he the times at the beginning when he tries to break that and introduce the yellow bastard or something and then it's so shocking that it happens it's not it's not shocking in another comic book if a character comes out and his skin is all yellow, but it's so shocking in that instance. Yeah. That style associated with Sin City, the type of style that Rodriguez would later ape, which was mm-hmm. kind of the whole thing behind the movie, was like, look at how cool this is. Look at how he can adapt as a comic book style. Um is what he will be remembered for. We, I, ta- I said before, the Dark Knight Returns and probably the Daredevil run will be his sort of big authorial thing that he is remembered for but that visual style is the most compelling part of his work and and the most recognizable and and i for some sense i wanted to say the drug sequence from hell and back because it is so <laughs> fucking bananas yeah it that is. You're, like, Absolutely. you're like was he on drugs when this happened uh, yeah but th- that just that unfortunately out uh, 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 over what is it that cancels out everything that he had ever done by just adding <laughs> you know a sequence where there's Hagar the horrible and he's turned into a robot and oh captain God. america is there and you're like what is yeah. happening yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. aside from helen back it's the visual style 
I, I'm on the same. I'm on the exact same place. Oh, it's the art. Okay. I think that the legacy of this book is the art. Yeah. That the thing that will possibly draw somebody in, the thing that can get through the force field of all the negative, you know, problematic shit that comes with the baggage of Frank Miller and all the stuff he's done since, and the ways that he just seems dead set on muddying up his legacy. This artwork is fucking great, and I would probably start in recommending this series to anybody by showing them a book like the art of sin city that that is, that is the end to just go, my God, this is cool looking that his storytelling is just absolutely incredible. And I think it really kind of hits in the third or fourth volume where he really goes whole hog into basically cutting out backgrounds, except for these necessary bits. And, you know, you're in a room that's all Venetian blinds and light coming through a, a fan on the ceiling, and and you know you're fighting a guy and his books are coming off of the of the library when you punch him there, and people just turn into like orange pulp when you hit them, <laughs> and but it has like you mentioned, there's that muted quality to it that it's so surreal and strange and cool that it just doesn't look like any other comic book that I've never seen a comic book since that quite looks like that. I've seen, there was a run that uh, Ron Garvey did on daredevil recently where he did a little touch of this with daredevil, but nothing full on like this. No one has gone full on Frank Miller in terms of Sin City, and I really think it's the most beautiful artwork he's ever done. Uh, yeah, so many panels live in my head rent free. Yeah, yeah, still absolutely. from that from that first like I can remember the first moment I looked at the panel. Yeah, that is so iconic in the sense that you you can look at some of those moments and you can remember exactly how you felt the first time you encountered that specific panel. Yeah. I know where I was. I know how I felt. I know what was going on in my life. It's that well done that it just instantly transports me to or again like you know heads on the wall and things like that that first moment of shock Mm -hmm. lives forever it's a (laughs) it's punch in the face artwork yes that makes everything so heightened that when you know marv is standing and pouring rain there's these white lines that just (gasps) cut through the image that are coming down diagonally and then you see the same thing with snow, these white blotches that are sort of blopping it out. And they just cut into the image. There's no line around those white dots. Yeah. It's just there as a solid block. You see the same thing with rain and broken glass and and cigarette smoke cutting its way through figures. And it yeah. just looks so fucking cool that everything about it, that is the part of this book that truly feels timeless, is that it feels like this art experiment that was crazy and it went absolutely right. Yeah. It's the visual equivalent of the writing of somebody like Dashiell Hammett, where yeah. he has gone through in his editing and he has taken out everything that isn't story. Yeah. And it is so lean and it is so just everything it needs to be and not a single drop more. And for him to accomplish that just visually is it's incredible. It really honestly is. And I agree with you. I think the art, regardless of anything else will always be uh, the scene. I always think of is when Marv is climbing up into, to get into his house and it's him like on the wall and you see him, you see his shadow and then you see the bricks only where there would be a shadow. And uh, that is just so it's beautiful. Hmm. It's compelling. It moves you in a way that comic art 
very rarely does. Yeah. It's also rare to be trusted. Yeah. As a reader yes. of mm. comics. It's yes. rare to be trusted to have your own experience and your own in, like intelligence for what's going on. So many illustrators need to tell you every single little bit. And it's so nervous. It's so anxious. It's so self-focused, I guess, where it's like, ah, look at it's what indulgent. I can do for you. Yes, indulgent. Yeah. Yeah. It, yep. Decadent even. Um and writers, same deal. Sometimes they just have to drown you in details, yep. especially in comic book world where it's like, check issue 238, true believers. I don't give a shit about that in my stories. And I, there's also art yeah. you can fall into. that The stuff, yeah. the details there, and it isn't always readily apparent what you're looking at. And then you go, holy shit, that's yeah. crazy. And the simplicity will demand a closer look, which yes. is even cooler Yeah, because you want more from it, but you fill in. What it is. You it's, fill in what you're experiencing. It's a clinic in show, don't tell. Yes. It really, yes, really truly. is. And I, this story does not work without it. It in no way works without it. If you did not have this art, this story would be, it would be busy and wordy and it would just not work. It works because he has taken the, he has reduced the art to the two most primal elements of what it is and is only using those two elements to convey the story. And because of that, you have to be involved in it. You yeah. have to be. It's so specifically him that yeah. he, he sort of, it's like this weaponized strain of Frank Miller that was created in a lab. <laughs> and even Frank Miller has never been able to fully recreate it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, I've never seen something that just so typifies a creator and just goes, this is them. Yeah. This is the one piece you should look at because this is the stuff that'll knock you on your ass. Even though this book is like 30 years old now and it's still just, it just was like, Bam! Punch in the face. I mean, yeah. that's the sort of stuff you get with people like Jack Kirby and Walt Simonson, these artists who just do kapow art. Just stuff that goes, holy shit, that, that is amazing. Every page of this is kapow art. Yeah. I feel so weird. It's been so long since I've said so many good things about Frank Miller all at once. <laughs> Don't be afraid, Joe. This is a safe space, I, a Frank Miller safe I, space, Miller no, which is terrifying I, I its own right. A, I think that, that feeling there is a great place to leave this conversation. Sure, uh, Folks, thank you so much for joining me. Mr. Joe Pretty. Thank you for being on. I've missed seeing you, man. Oh, my yeah. God. It is. I have been looking forward to this so much i am so glad to be back i'm so excited this has been awesome it's every it's so good um real quick i also want to give a shout out to the the, the folks on the discord because y'all oh, are yeah. awesome y'all got me through this year your conversations the kind of, uh being willing to engage with me and all my ridiculousness and uh, superman and the matrix and all that like <laughs> thank y'all so much for that thank you for having me on this sure. has been incredible awesome. absolutely and kit to forge welcome again it's wonderful to be back. I just, I always have such a great time. <laughs> we love having together. you and we yeah. love having you guys here together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a good feeling. I, I never thought I would say out loud how much I like listening to Joe talk after the years and years. <laughs> <we've been laughs> friends talking. No, we've been friends for 11 years and it's a, it's a very specific context to get to spend time with Joe doing this thing that we really bonded on in the start. And I didn't yeah. realize how deeply I missed it until yeah, today. No, I thought I knew, but. Now I know more. It's yeah. No, it's it's been a while since we've done this and I, I do realize how much I miss it. And just 
talking about comic books like this. I miss that. I miss the shit out of this. Well, oh, yeah. you guys are always welcome back to the home of displaced podcasters. Now, hold on. Yay. We haven't thanked you yet, Mr. <laughs> oh, Casey Doran. Oh, yeah. oh okay. Well, I'm glad you. having you here, sir. Uh, I, I know that you may have walked away with a sadder feeling about Sin City, but sometimes that's the thing that needs to happen. Your relationships it, with media change. It made me feel. And the I, we're back at a panel episodes. Uh, I'm, I'm over the moon. Oh, Panel thank episodes you, are fantastic. <laughs> we love you, Casey. <laughs> Thanks. Hell yeah. <laughs> and also a special thank you, and I love you to our episode sponsors. Oh. So a special thank you to Larry Brunswick, Margaret King, Tim Batson, Dan Neidecker, Don Tuvey, Sterling Taylor, Tom the Belgian, Wim the Belgian, Misa the Barbarian, James Brucker, Gus Lindgren, Jem Newman, Carol and Dave Brulette, Calzone, Kalen, Matt Weber, and Hans Twight. Thank you, folks. We love you so much. If you want to become an episode sponsor, yes, you, uh, <laughs> you should go to patreon.com slash radio versus the Martians or go to radio versus the Martians.com. Click the big green button on the right side of the screen. Or if you scan all the way to the bottom, it'll be down there, too. Other than that, we love you guys. We will see you next month. Radio versus the Martians is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Valverde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Dorn, and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music is written and performed by James Wetzel. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. He just had the rotten luck of being born in the wrong century. He'd be right at home on some ancient battlefield swinging an axe into somebody's face. Or in a Roman arena taking a sword to other gladiators like him. They'd have tossed him girls like Nancy back then.